Hi there, Matthew Parsons. Hello. How are you? I'm well, thanks. What can I do for you? What is Ghost Echoes? Ghost Echoes is a music history podcast with secret rules. Rule number one is... And then rule number two states that... And rule number three is that I'm not allowed to tell the listeners what the first two rules are. If you want to figure it out, you're going to have to subscribe to Ghost Echoes wherever you get podcasts. I'm Lior Phillips, host of This Must Be The Gig. We're a weekly podcast that documents everything about the world of live music. Speaking with choreographers, costume and set designers, the people who run beloved venues and festivals, and, of course, speaking with musicians about that one gig that changed their lives. Get your peek behind the curtain at consequenceofsound.net, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too. And I'll be right there behind you. Constant listeners, and welcome yet again to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. My name is Rockin' Randall Colburn, and today we are here to discuss the film adaptation of Gerald's Game. Last week we talked about the book. We had a very exciting panel for that. Uh, your responses, your comments on it have been very well appreciated, and uh, we're glad you enjoyed it. We liked it too. Uh, who is joining me for this uh, discussion? Uh, we're all separated, so I can't point at who should uh, say hi. So, Mike, why don't you start? Yes, this is Mike Flanagan. No, I'm just joking. This is Mike Rothman. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to skip the nickname because I, I made already made the joke. But uh, yes, editor-in-chief of Consequence of Sound, and I'm here in my apartment uh, where we traditionally record um, alone <laughs> because of the coronavirus. So We're all uh, alone. Yeah, we're like, we're like uh, little, uh, little Jessies. Uh, all, yes. <laughs> all alone <about>. together. <laughs> yeah. And who is that uh, speaking from across the void? From across the void, this is also Mike Flanagan. No, just (laughs) kidding, guys. Um, This is Lara Unterstall. I'm also skipping the nickname because I did it last time, and no one says Tootsie in the movie. Uh, That's a good one. And who who is our fourth loser who's joining us? This is Mackenzie Kobe Ribeye Gerber, (laughs) and I am calling in from my apartment uh, due to COVID nineteen, and um, uh, it's uh, it's it's comfy here. Uh, I I do miss uh, seeing your wonderful faces, Um, but I'm ready to talk some Moonlight Man and some some Mouse Mouse. (laughs) (laughs) And 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 uh, this is. Um, Randall Viagra Colburn. Uh, I figured I'd do a movie-specific reference here. Nice. So, nice. Uh, yeah, thank you. It's, you it's know, a I think, nickname I hope to carry with me the rest of my life. I feel, I feel like uh, Randall <laughs> Viagra Colburn. Did you just say Carrie? <laughs> oh. Oh. As in Carrie Stephen oh King. A little, little, little bit of King's uh, Dominion there, huh? for you. <laughs> 
I will say, like, I was going to say, you know, rocking Randall, Viagra, Colburn. I'm rocking Viagra. I think there's some, you know, there's, there's, some, there's, there's some, some symmetry there. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it sounds so, like a tour. Sorry, I was going to say it sounds like a, like a Jimmy Buffett tour sponsored yeah. by Viagra. That's it. That's the thought. Uh, I like Jimmy the Buffett. thought. God. Um, so we previously talked about Gerald's game back when it came out. This is sort of uh, new territory for us in that we're here talking about a movie adaptation that we had already discussed previously because it's relatively new. Although we didn't go too deep into it. And I, I don't think many of us were on that episode uh, where we first talked about the movie. But uh, And we also had an interview with Mike Flanagan um, that would be worth it to go back and revisit. Uh, although we're going to talk about some aspects of that today because it was a really good interview. And he talked a lot about uh, Gerald's Game, which is a movie I'm very excited to discuss. So... Um, so yeah, I guess like the best place to get started is uh, to head into the Dairy Public Library. Is that correct, Mike? Yes, I believe so. Let's go see our friend Mike Hanlon. I think he's got some uh, he's got <laughs> he's some, some materials on, for us on the history. Yeah. <laughs> Mike Hanlon, if you see, excuse me, sir. Do you have Prince Albert in a can? You do. Well, you better let the poor guy out. Yo, Mike Hanlon. Did I have to go? Did I have to get cleaned up? Tell him. Tell him. Tell him I'll see him tonight. Get out. Last chance, don't you? Get out. Get out. Hello, welcome to the Dairy Public Library. This is the section of the podcast where we talk about the history of the movie uh, that we are here to discuss and, you know, sort of uh, introduce you all to it. So, although you've probably seen it if if you're listening to this, but this is the very first adaptation of Gerald's Game, which I think is notable since this is, many considered this to be of King's uh, properties, an unadaptable one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, obviously many of his books are, they sort of lend themselves to the screen. There's a, there's a cinematic quality to a lot of his writing, especially his Latter-day writing. Uh, like Needful Things, we talked a lot about how cinematic that book felt. And I think it's interesting with Gerald's Game that this book is so internalized. It takes place so much within uh, this woman's mind and in like this really claustrophobic setting that I think a lot of the big producers at that time, usually who were chomping at the bit to uh, produce Stephen King stuff because they knew they could make some easy money on it. They were like, ah, do we produce Gerald's Game or do we make another Children of the Corn sequel? And they made their... <laughs> They, they made, made their choice. Corn two, corn three, corn four. Uh, I think corn seven, maybe up to them. I know there's corn six, six, six. Oh, how about and there's that? There's got to be the like other sequel that's Children of the Corn, but it's K O R N. Oh, just like the band Jonathan Davis. Should we go into yeah. the, the tangent of talking uh, corn again? Because I love. We talk corn, corn on a lot of episodes. We do. Uh, Laura, have you ever seen Corn in concert? <laughs> I've never seen them live, shockingly. I've seen Marilyn Manson multiple times. Um, I've seen many things of their ilk, but I never did see Corn. Were you a fan? I had that Freak on a Leash album in high school, and, you know, like, there was that minute where it was like, Ugh, anything dark, and, like, I'm wearing a dog collar. Um, <laughs> that's about as far as it went, though. You know, I, 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 I do like to, to think back on that simpler time. Yeah, uh, we all. I think we've all sort of owned up to our past corn fandom uh, on this podcast, so it is it is welcome uh, very and good. and unjudged, I think. So, um, 
I'll talk a little bit about the history just based on some things that I learned when I interviewed Mike Flanagan back in 2017 when this came out. Yeah. Was it 2017 that this came out? It was September 2017. It was the first year of this podcast and one of our first interviews, actually. So, yeah, it's it's kind of a crazy episode that we have that's on there. We, We literally just have it listed as. Gerald's Game movie review, but it's so much more. You could find the Sleeping Beauties so review much in more. that. Uh, there's an homage to Tom Petty uh, in there as well. Uh, well, he used to do our theme music before he before, sued us. Before he sued us, yes. Uh, we're still paying the royalties for that. No. Um, God, but it's a, it's a crazy loaded episode. Yeah. We owe Tom Petty. Oh, my God. Tom, I miss you. Uh, but busy times uh, within that episode... Um, which is why I'm I'm glad we're going to have a little more straightforward episode. There's not going to be any tangents about corn. Uh, oops, sorry, we already did that. And, oops, you know, but <laughs> that's like disturbed too. Yeah, wait, that's disturbed. Yeah. Shit, shit. <laughs> Chicago's Dominion. Delete, well, delete you know, uh, same shit. I'm trying to take it down. I'm trying to take it down. You know, I will say one of the things I did like, uh, just even reading up about the this movie, is the fact that like Mike Flanagan dreamed about making this as a kid, like like when reading about it as a teenager. I mean, apparently, I guess Ugh. he would carry this book into meetings and production meetings. Uh, yeah, when I when I spoke to him, he talked about um, how he's a, he said he's been a constant reader his whole life. He's a rabid fanboy, and he said he actually read Gerald's Game in college. Uh, but he said that once he became a filmmaker, he, you know, would go into pitch meetings and uh, so on and so forth. But he basically uh, Gerald's game was always the the thing that he wanted to make. He called yeah. it his dream project. Uh, so I'm actually going to read this quote from him that I love. He goes, um, before they let me make movies, I would carry a copy of Gerald's Game around in my bag. So when I'd have general meetings trying to be a writer and they'd say, what's your dream project? I'd say, Gerald's Game is my dream project. I'd pull out the book, and if they knew the book, they'd laugh and go, that's not filmable. If they didn't know the book, I'd pitch it, and they'd go, that's not a movie. It went on that way for half of my life. Then all of a sudden, the stars aligned at once. And we were able to launch into this production. It felt completely surreal. I had been seeing this movie in my head for almost 20 years, and now we got to try to rip it out of there and put it up on the screen. I had no idea how it would be received. I was like, this could go one of two ways. It was either going to be great or it was going to be utterly unwatchable. Um, so, uh, and then... That's so fun. Wait, what was that? I just said, that's so fun. Like, as a as a filmmaker whose dreams are currently on indefinite hiatus, that just gives me good feelings. <sighs> there you go. Yeah, and I I do think it's interesting. So I guess uh, I think this is a good time just in a, to offer up our broader thoughts. Like, what do you guys think? Is this great or is it utterly unwatchable? Uh, who wants to start? <laughs> what? I don't think it's unwatchable. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't I, know well, that it's. Go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, it's on Netflix, so it's got to be watchable. Um, no, I. <laughs> No, I think it's I think it's a really solid adaptation because it's inventive and it's imaginative. Um, you know, he talks a lot about uh, in several interviews just the the ingenuity he had of being able to kind of take Jesse's voices um, and almost create sort of like a, a, a stripped down play. If you think about yeah. it, you know, it's like a, it's like a chamber drama. And mm-hmm. I love the fact that it works like you're watching pretty much like um, like yeah like a, a, a bare a bare bones play um 
you know, and, and I feel like given your, your playwright history, Randall, I feel like you'd probably um, be able to extrapolate on that because I think that that's, this is a play basically. Right. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, with the yeah. exception well, of do like, you all think, do you all think that if, if this was a stage play that the dog be played by a person? <laughs> <laughs> God damn it, Mac. <laughs> I think I think the dog would be definitely in a suit, uh, and I I bring up I think this is the third time I've brought this show up on the pod. But as a kid, uh, growing up in a, an Episcopalian school as a as a Jew, which was a lot of fun, um, they would Hell show yeah. this really ridiculous Christian show where this um, the, this family this Christian family got a Saint Bernard, not Cujo, and um, it would Cooch. like when the parents weren't around, the, the the dog would turn into this guy in a giant dog's like Saint Bernard suit, um, and yep, he would teach him out. lesson, and it was, it was ridiculous. And that's what I would like to imagine uh, how they they'd execute the dog in this uh, Gerald's game play is have a guy in a huge large dog suit costume. Um, just <laughs> all like I can see is Bruce. Dog situation. Yeah, yeah. All I can see is Bruce Greenwood dressed up as like Willard or whatever. You know, <laughs> whatever, whatever, whatever. <laughs> yeah, with the big uh, circle around one eye. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I think I think honestly, I I find this to be top five all time Stephen King adaptations. I love this movie. I think it is so well done, and I think a lot of it has to do maybe with how smart I think the adaptation is, um, is because the thing is I haven't revisited this book in a while. I remember it from when I was young and, but what I do remember, and I think what I struggled with when I was young, and I think the reason that maybe the people's like, you know, first, uh, uh, instinct when they hear about it is that it's unfilmable is because they have just this image of a woman tied to her bed spiraling into her thoughts and there isn't and I think that it doesn't take too much to imagine how to bring that to life mm-hmm. but what I love is is Flanagan captures every uh, he, he elaborates on the world while also capturing what was special about the book which is that King makes every single like uh, uh, object and texture and sort of like movement really matter in the book and that's what's really so powerful is that the glass of water you know uh Mm -hmm. the the shelf above her head like the the handcuffs the bed like the um the bedposts and everything all of that like every object really matters and then he even elaborates on it here by having the cell phone be part of it as well and then the key which is you know on the other side it's like we get how important all these objects are and we see uh you know i don't know like that the scene when she first uh is like trying to tip the water Mm -hmm. like off the shelf to me it like gives me like anxiety because it's so like he films it yeah like he films it so well but it's like because you really get the imp- like the the importance of that glass of water and the fact that if this glass of water if she can't access it uh then she's fucked you know well, and I, I feel like it's almost like pixar where you know she, they that they, no, then they, they they personify like the semantics of like breaking down mental thoughts you know like um yeah with you know it's a, a different kind of inside out exactly yeah, yeah like where you, gerald's game yeah well <laughs> yeah could you imagine um but they really get into like the nitty-gritty of just like how we have processes to lead to like either revelations or past memories or um what you know triggering and stuff like that i mean it really gets into like the like how our minds work um by you know 
you're wielding that process through either Gerald, you know, the, you know, Gerald incarnate, reincarnate, <laughs> um, or the other version of Jesse, uh, that's sitting there. And I, and I love that because it's, it makes it yeah. such a cool device to use narratively, um, while also logically making sense at the same time too. Um, and yeah. And I, I was just going to say, having just read the book for last week's podcast, um, it really is a love letter to the book in a lot of ways. And I, I mean, what a spectacular lack of imagination for so many people, unsurprisingly, over the years to say, oh, this is unfilmable. I was like so excited because I hadn't seen the movie before I read it. Like I knew I was going to read this book for the podcast, so I intentionally didn't watch the movie until after I read the book. So, you know, either way, you get a slightly tainted experience, I guess you could say, you know, by you can never see them as independent. Um, but I was so excited to see how this guy, especially who I, I really like his other work, um, would adapt it. And I wasn't for the most part really disappointed. I think like for about like 75 to 80% of the movie, it's fucking fantastic. And it's so tense. Like you said, the water, every little thing, like I was, you know, I, I wish I was in a slightly different state of mind so I could have enjoyed it more. Cause like right now it was just like, Oh my God, I'm so fucking stressed out. But, <laughs> uh, but I mean, really, really well done. And I, I just, uh, he just got it and he got what fat to cut and why, and he, you know, it's a really good adaptation for so many reasons that we can get into. Laura, yeah. did, was this your first time watching? Yeah, yeah, it was. It was my first time reading and watching. You know, it was one of those bo- oh, wow. ones on my list that I had. Uh, you know, I'd been like, oh, I'll save it, I'll save it. And then, like a few months ago, you know, we talked about which books we were going to cover on the podcast. So I was like, oh, I'll wait. You know, and I'll wait until I read the book. And and so I, I enjoyed having that experience. And just but some, you know, as a as a filmmaker who likes to, you know, also write and direct, it was like, oh, like it was just so cool to see like how his mind tackled it. And like, you know, and I don't agree with every single choice, but I think like by like I said, like the vast majority of it, I'm like, fuck, yeah, and like really cool choices, things I wouldn't have necessarily done, you know, just just, you know, in a good way. Um yeah, it was super cool. It was like, I just was like, you know, it was a fun fan experience for me. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, just another really cool quote here that Flanagan gave me, he was kind of talking about their process and uh, uh, like he's talking about him and his co-writer working on it. And he says that we would read the book over and over again. I would highlight specific lines that were just in the prose. And it was just like, someone has to say this. The only way to get this idea into the movie for someone to say it out loud. That was kind of the big question mark. It was ultimately going to be a movie about dialogue. I was like, how do we frame that dialogue in such a way that it's going to feel cinematic and carry people's interest? The big part of that was why Gerald has to disappear from the story after 10 minutes. Once that was unlocked, I was like, okay, this is a movie about a marriage. I want to hear from a married couple. And I love this part too, where he's talking about being on set and Bruce Greenwood who plays Gerald uh, and him and uh, Carlo Gugino who plays Jesse were all talking and they basically were like well he plays Gerald for a certain amount of time but after that he plays Jesse like mm-hmm. he's not playing Gerald and you know once he manifests as you know this manifestation in her mind he is he is the part of the darkest parts of her like the parts of her yeah. that that she resents about herself or that she's working through and it became this sort of angel devil thing and uh and I love this quote here so Flanagan says 
yeah, and that was really exciting when Bruce was like, I'm playing your character. I meant to perform this in a way in your head you would expect him to be saying this. So he would say to her before we do scenes, how are you feeling? How anxious are you? How discouraged are you? How is the Gerald in your head going to best serve the needs of this, whether it's to discourage you from a course of action or to point you in the right direction in a reverse psychology way? And then he said they have a very detailed kind of rhythm together of being aware that they were actually playing the same character, and that was just fascinating. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. I thought that was all really cool. Um and a really smart way of doing it because in the book, like, remind me, uh, Laura, like, we don't really see, like, Gerald doesn't manifest to her in the no, book, does he? Yeah. Not not really. I mean, he comes back in little memories and dreams, but it's, she has sev- several distinct voices in her head and it's her good wife self, yep. which is kind of, you know, the role that Gerald ends up taking in the movie because her, her good wife is kind of, I don't know how to, how to describe it. It's, it's the ways she psychologically protects herself or convinces herself to do things that go against her own nature because uh, out of a place of fear it's a a lot of internalized misogyny it's a lot of internalized self-hatred so it utterly makes sense to have gerald in a movie version take take that voice basically and and be the one talking down to her as you know and then you you realize at some point in the movie she's actually talking to herself talking down to herself and i think we all do carry the voices of people we've encountered with us whether we realize that it's that person or not like you know uh, you know you just say things to yourself and it's like that's not a thought you had originally that was something some shitty person said to you a long time ago and it just became part of you so I, you know at first i was like oh no we have like a male voice talking to her for most of the movie is that gonna like fuck up the energy that i enjoyed in the book but it really didn't because it was just taking that role and then she had you know and they cut they sort of folded characters together so mm-hmm. you had in the book, Ruth, her college roommate, who represented the more, like, idealized side of herself. So why not just have that be her? Because um, then you don't have to get into the, like, exposition of a college backstory and this other yeah. character and all that. I think that's what I meant about, like, good choices. Like, you know, they, they streamlined where they needed to um, in order to make it a cinematic experience and not, like, very, very exposition and unnecessarily dialogue heavy. Even though, obviously, the dialogue essential. Right. Yep. Yeah, and and honestly, I, I think one of the biggest uh, issues I have with this movie is when he is kind of slavishly devoted to the book, um, which we'll get into, you know, as this episode unfolds. And if you heard yeah. if you heard my original review in 2017, you'll know that that's a common uh, beat and has become a bit of this podcast is my uh, contention <laughs> with oh, the yeah. ending, um, which I still have. Uh, but there are elements that I can see, especially knowing Flanagan's work and his uh, his his uh, his um, autonomy as a director, like he his 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 kind of like um style he he tends to kind of build towards that um that symmetry and i can i appreciate the ending a little bit more again i'll digress on it a little bit but um i do think what's cool to to go back to about this movie is um after knowing how much of a king fan he is you know like when we when he first get got into this and you know he first did gerald's game in 2017 you know, every director that comes into the chair, like always says, oh, yeah, I love Stephen King. You know, you know, it's so it's so great. He's, you know, I, I read this, sh- you know, The Shining when I grew up. Um, but like, you know, two years later, three years later, almost he's really proven that. I mean, not only with just with Dr. Sleep, but like in constant interviews that he's been in since where he's, you know, and, and then the stuff that he's done. Um, and then when you like even go back to some of his older works, like, uh, you know, like the sequel, sequel to uh, Ouija. Um, love it. 
and and even hush you could still see elements of like how king has affected him and and especially in like haunting of hill house uh where it, it literally feels like um it in one of the chapters and I, you yeah. d- definitely see like it's in his blood um and so i i took that to mind revisiting it this time uh revisiting gerald's game this time and um it definitely made me appreciate uh the movie uh, a lot more and it makes me wonder if he actually is kind of working towards building some sort of cinematic universe in his head, because um, we can get into that in King's Dominion. But anyway, uh, it it, it definitely changed my perception of how, of how I looked at this movie, just knowing Mike Flanagan as a director more, um, which is something that just wasn't the case in 2017 for me. Which is great, Mike, because I, this is my second watch of the film. I still haven't read the book and I still really enjoyed it this time as, as I enjoyed it a lot the first time and was very, very uh, <laughs> mean to Mike. Probably. <laughs> I, I don't know if I was on that last episode, but in terms of, in terms of the things that you didn't like or the ending or whatever, but um, I was a little more critical of it this time, mm-hmm. but I still really enjoyed it. And it's it like Laura was saying, it, it was, it was really fun to watch it. And see now again. I haven't read the book, but even even knowing just th- this thing just takes place in like a you know a room essentially for most for the most part. It's just really cool how it's it's fleshed out and so much. It's just it's intriguing and you are sucked in. Mm-hmm. The the movie it's like what an hour and forty something minutes, but like you don't really feel. I don't. I didn't really feel the time. I was like really involved and invested, even though I already knew what was going to happen. So it, as a rewatch, I thought it was really, it still was really, really solid. Well, and I just I, love the way, I just love the way that like the room itself, uh, you become so intimately familiar with it yes. in the same way that, that Jesse is like that. He uses POV shots in such a cool way. Mm-hmm. Like just the way that you can only see like his hair and his hand, like Gerald's hair in his hands, uh, like yes. from right. her perspective. And then also just the, the framing of the curtains and mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. windows and then the way, the place where, you know, the, uh, the way that I don't know, like the whole back area of the room and when yeah. you actually do get like when Gerald moves around there or she moves around there, the way that that space is navigated to me, you become really intimately familiar with it in ways that are really eerie. Like, I mean, and uh, and that really helps contribute to the horror, too, because then once the mis- Mr. Moonlight enters or is it oh, like, yeah. is it is it oh. is it? Is he just Moonlight Man or is it Mr. Moonlight? It's not Mr. Moonlight. That's a Beatles song <laughs> or a cover. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, it's, it's like Moonlight that, Man. Um, but like when because you see that same shot of the curtain so many mm-hmm. times that when it is nighttime and you do see him standing in the shadows, you do sense that something is wrong because you've seen that same area yeah. over right. and over. So when you do see like that figure of the shadows, it's so scary because you do sense along with her because she's become so intimately familiar with that, that, you know, you sense that something's wrong. And I love yeah, it. Just, yeah. 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 And you could see in, in the hands of a lesser filmmaker, them totally fucking that up and not getting how that the geography of that room is so essential to it. And it's, and you know that he is so good at building dread and like with these subtle, the little subtle movement of the curtain and the, you know, the repetition of, of you know, different frames. Uh, I just love it so much. And like, you really get that in haunting of Hill house and even in hush as well. Um, yeah, I just, I fucking loved it so much. Like I thought he's so, so good. And that's my favorite type of horror is like, like you know yeah absolutely yeah yeah and so i really was like damn 
Good well, job. Like you, you really thought about it. Well, that sense of uh, place and also the blocking in general, like it allows so much of um, not only just repetition, but you get a sense of time too. And then that sense of time starts to crack. Um, and yeah. when it starts to crack, it's when the dread is at its peak. Uh, I one of my favorite shots is is the beginning of those curtain shots is when you finally see the shade of sunlight shift, um, which is something you don't. Yeah, often I really... love you see the, the the shadows of like the the leaves and the trees yeah. like just like kind of slowly dissipating and then they're gone. And then, it's such a cool little. <laughs> I just detail. like the things you don't notice. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, and that's something that King absolutely wields to his advantage all the time in the books. I mean, listen to enough word processor, the God segments, and that's all I ever fucking regurgitate. And, um, and the fact that like Flanagan brought that to life is just, it shows just how much of a, uh, of a constant reader. Really yes. Yeah. He, he's getting the right things out of it. The things that make it work and not like he sometimes like, you know, King adaptations, they just hit the broad themes so hard and they lose the detail. And he did strike a balance. And I, I do have criticisms of it. Don't worry, they're coming. Um, but like he did, for the most part, strike that balance of like where the details are effective, you mm-hmm. know, like and I really yeah. appreciated that. Well, speaking of, Mike, why don't we move on? What's our Where are we heading next? Uh, well, we're heading to the Barrens. Uh, and so, you know, bring some socks, extra pair if you, if you, if you must. Because <laughs> we're going to go meet some heroes and villains. I'm going to have to kill this fucking clown. Welcome to the Losers Club, asshole! <laughs> Do the heroes and villains live in the Barrens? Well, I always just say that's to get us out of the library. <laughs> <laughs> I say like, definitely where the villains live. It's but. where the villains live, and hey, the, the heroes live there too because they have their little rockets yeah. and everything else. Um, no, it's true. So, it's true. It's true. You know, and sometimes uh, uh, yeah. Bowers stops by. Well, this is an interesting one, and I I feel like you know this was similar in your guys's book episode. It's like this is we don't have a lot of characters here, so I think it's fun to sort of like uh, consider you know how it is these characters do manifest on the page so like and i guess this is probably a good time too to talk about the performances a little bit which i think are so integral to the success of this um i think this is like really even though like carla gugino and bruce greenwood are like two of the most beautiful people that have ever walked on this planet uh yes Yes. i have i have some things to say about that go ahead (laughs) (laughs) but but they are both so good at this and really perfectly matched i mean uh and carla's incredible and we'll talk more about her but i i also am like uh I was just like I'm so enamored with uh, with Daddy Greenwood in this. Like it's uh... <laughs> well, here, here's the thing about Greenwood, and this is something that um, Flieger actually brought up in the last episode is that in the book he's like a Slavin um, pig, like, right? He's and that it just wouldn't work if that was the case here because Greenwood is so charming and that his charm carries so much of the movie because it's so whimsical and you need that whimsy because that whimsy cuts right through so much of the dread that we were talking about before and it keeps you entertained and it also sells the sort of device that uh, Flanagan's uh, um, you know put in play here uh, which is you know using these characters to kind of facilitate all of Jesse's um, you know mindsets and thoughts and and Greenwood is such an MVP in the sense that um, every time he's just he he does that sick humor that gallows humor so well yeah and I yeah. and I just love it and like you're right like I I was you know they're they're both the most beautiful people ever especially Greenwood <laughs> considering his age and the the, the body I he know has. he's so he's so built oh my god so built I think the the uh, thing with Bruce Greenwood is you know or just with this movie in general when they decided like okay we're we're, we're gonna have her talking to Gerald through the whole movie. 
Can you imagine having to look at some like slovenly? I know. Gerald <laughs> in his boxers a, for an hour and forty minutes. On some level, I kind of you know like the part of me that's just like yeah, fuck, fuck the audience is like hell yeah, that would be awesome. Um, but you know, I get it, it. It did feel a little like oh, these are the movie friendly versions of the characters. They're a little bit nicer. They're a little bit hotter or a lot hotter. In, in Gerald's case, you know, it's like <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. I was kind of like <laughs> okay, we're we're in Hollywood now, baby, but. Nonetheless, I appreciated the aesthetics. Well, imagine like if they had hired like Bill Camp. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love Bill Camp. I do too. He would have like, killed it too. He would have actually killed it. Actually, in, in hindsight, I, I kind of wish that Bill Camp was in this movie now. Um, <laughs> but it would just be a totally Star different the movie. Like he pops up, you know, from under the bed. Oh, uh, you know, Jesse. You? I mean, it just wouldn't work like the same but way. But I enjoy it. Like I, I like what they did with bringing Gerald into it threefold because if it was just like 10 versions of Carla Gugino, like it just wouldn't have been, it just won't, wouldn't have caught, kept my attention as well. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. it, because you wanted to see his hot daddy body. Right? <laughs> I just wanted to, I just want to see Greenwood and some boxer briefs. Okay. Yeah. Is it so much to ask <laughs> in these times? Well, I'll just I'll just say that like Greenwood, I, I guess what I love about his performance here, and this relates to what we were discussing earlier, which is that he's playing a version of her when in the latter half of the movie. But but I still think that the character work is great because, you know, we, the only true Gerald we see is in the beginning um, and, you know, the way he is with the dog. But he's also not like like in those moments leading up to the bedroom, like, yeah, he seems kind of like an asshole, but he also still seems like he loves her like there is like moments where he is tender with her and Mm -hmm. uh you know and like obviously it's like it's not like a pure like abusive relationship in the sense that he is like mean and cruel you know but then once we get in the bedroom like that that shift into the darkness like that moment when he wants to take power and this these intense discussions about like about um about sexuality and about the vibe, man, like the scene. And then, but that's the thing is like later when he does become a version of her, we're still seeing him as mm-hmm. filtered through her. And that I think is really important. And we saw the Gerald at the beginning, who is maybe the objective version of Gerald, but then later we get to see the subjective version of Gerald, the one that she sees, the one that, uh, you know, how she frames his behaviors and how she in her own mind has internalized his defenses, but also uh, broken down his defenses and what she really sees like that. The scene that kills me, and I don't think this is in the book because the Viagra is not in the book, is it, Lara? It is not. No. Confirmed. Yeah, yeah. And so, but that scene where they talk about the Viagra and the idea that they he was hiding, taking the pills, and then she found them, and they never spoke about it. But he knew she found them, so he just stopped hiding them. And mm-hmm. that moment to me was such like a really fascinating, telling, uh, like kind of like you know sea change within the marriage that is really Mm -hmm. sad and really depressing and also like i don't know just like really revealing and i always feel like uh i that's what i love is like we still get those when we learn these little stories about gerald uh greenwood is able to play them in a way that is both in line with who the objective version of the character is but then he's able to you know the dialogue is a lot in many ways filtered through her subjective version of him and that's like some really tricky acting which is why i think that i love to i i think that he's so good in this as well is because he really does have to navigate like some very tricky areas and we still do get i feel like a 
really well-developed sense of who Gerald is, uh, even though he dies 10 minutes into the movie. Oh, totally. So. And, 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 mm-hmm. and what's even more tragic when you think about it is just considering how mean Gerald B is <laughs> to Jesse in these thoughts, yeah. you just get the sense that she's so just, she has just absolutely no confidence um, in, in so many ways because of the sort of, um, you know, life that she's been having, um, you know, ever since, you know, what happened with, you know, her and her dad. Um, and, and that, that sort of like in hindsight of when you rewatch it is just really depressing. <laughs> um, it's very, it feels very right to me. And, and I mean, you get into, and that's the whole, you know, the theme of, of, of the book and the movie mm-hmm. is her, you know, realizing these things about herself and pull, you know, and literally like, you know, go, going through the like layer tearing, literally and figuratively you know process uh, of realizing these things and working through her trauma and like but i i I like i I feel like it was again it's it's reflective of the book but it's also a very accurate depiction of like those little things you let happen in relationships and how they build over time and how they can get toxic and abusive even when they're not like outright classic like domestic abuse like you know textbook domestic abuse it's like it still becomes toxic and emotionally abusive and and i think that the way they revealed all that through his performance and the shit that he said the filtered version of, of g2 um top notch g2. yeah and i agree g2, g2. g2. <laughs> great great acting from g2 and g1 anyway, yeah, that's, that's yeah. The i i mean it's just like just rewatch i mean that that's the thing it's like this is really like a solid rewatchable movie and i think you get even more nuances the second go around um because they are just brutal to her. Even the even like Jesse B is yeah, kind of like, yeah. I'm not going to put up with your bullshit. They're, they're, it's it's just this interesting, um, again, Pixar personification of emotions that you have, um, and I, 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 there's just a lot of nuance to it. And I and I and I think knowing that in hindsight also aided in my feelings towards the the ending this time around. But um, Again, I'll tease that a little bit more, but yeah, we'll we'll talk about the ending in a bit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, what do, what do we think about Jesse here? Like, I think, uh, like Lara, I think for you, how do you think they frame, you know, the the repressed memories, the stuff with her dad, all the you know the mouse kind of saga? Uh, how is that transferred? Do you think from the book uh, to the film? I thought they handled it very well. I was, you know, again, one of my least favorite things in cinema two of them i should say are like flashbacks and voiceovers Mm -hmm. so i was like oh my god how are they gonna do this like you know without making it super cheesy and i i really liked the both the aesthetics of the flashback sequences and the dreams and the way that they transitioned in and out of them um with one particular moment in mind um i i think that I think it was, I just think it was really well handled. I think they did, you know, as, uh, um, and, and I also read an interview with Flanagan where he was talking about like how uncomfortable it was to film some of that material working with a young actress and all that kind of stuff. But I think that they, um, they showed just enough of it, uh, you know, and we made this comment on the, on the book episode that in the book, they keep going back to these, you know, the molestation memory, the eclipse memory where he's, you know, jacking it and like, it's just disgusting and it like keeps forcing you to go back to it, back to it. And we were kind of, I was even having a bit of an internal debate about like, is it exploitative? Um, is it too much or is it necessary to put the reader in her shoes through having to relive that memory? And in the movie, I think they made the wise decision to like show it once and get out. Cause I think in a movie it would have just been like, 
disgusting and too much you know i don't know there's some separation that can happen with reading versus seeing yeah especially when it comes to like child molestation i'm just gonna put that out there but um I, and I and I loved the aesthetics of the eclipse sequence. I thought with that like blur, like blurred blood red, like fucking. It was not how I pictured it in my head, but like I thought, you know, it was very like giallo. Like they heightened it and made it like more nightmare like, and it becomes this theme. This the color the red is the theme, and I'm I'm blabbering. <laughs> I'll stop. No, no, no. no that's good. I, no, and I agree no. because I think that like that the aesthetic, the heightened aesthetic of it is what helps uh, frame it less as a flashback and more as sort yes. of like a fever dream, you know? Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. Uh, which I think really helps it not feel like a traditional flashback. That, and I yeah. think just like, like if there's one thing that I'll really call out and uh, and this is not really heroes and villains, I'll just say it quickly though, but I, cause, but I do think it helps build character and it helps build, I think sort of the fractured nature of her mind, like as it starts dissolving. And like you said earlier, Mike, like when time begins to collapse a little bit is, uh, is all the editing. Like the, mm-hmm. I think this movie is extremely well edited and the way yes. that, oh my the, God. yeah. And like the way that it'll cut from like Gerald being right next to her ear to Gerald being by the window yes. to, um, yeah. yeah. Or like the various ways that, you know, Jesse two or Jesse or, uh, yeah. Uh, J two will, uh, pop from, <laughs> you know, area to area of the room and all, of those kind of moments but then also just the way that the the memory of the eclipse comes in and out too and the way that and and like the scene in her bedroom with you know first it's the you know it's young jesse and her dad and then it's like old jesse and her dad Mm -hmm. and then it's young jesse and old jesse like the way that he sort of navigates uh that use of character and because that really does track her mental progress you know as she's sort as she's working through this trauma so yeah, and just one one final thought on that is like the and it comes and you know it comes full circle by the end of the movie you start to realize like all the men in her life are the same man they're all her dad on some level yeah. um, and one thing I, I picked up on is like right before they go into that first eclipse flashback Gerald pops up and suddenly he's wearing this like shitty shirt and I'm mm-hmm. like why is he wearing this yeah. hideous shirt and then you realize like it's her dad played by Henry Thomas um, I just there's a thing on last podcast where Henry Zabrowski always his, his full name is Henry Thomas and he always goes like in his mom's voice like oh henry thomas henry thomas so i can only hear that but like with henry thomas is playing um you know this as the father which is another really great performance um he's just such a piece of shit and i love the way they do that scene it's so unflinching with the lack of score and all that shit and like you know oh fuck it's so good yeah, and they do. Yeah, this, like, I'll say I'll say along the lines of Henry Thomas, like he's a Flanagan favorite. Yep. Uh, FF. Yes. Oh yeah, and because he's he pops up in Ouija, he pops up in this, and he's also in he's uh, in Haunting of Hill House. Haunting of Hill House. He's and in then Doctor he's, Sleep. And then he's yeah, then he's in Doctor Sleep, and I would say that this is probably of all the Flanagan projects. I think this is henry thomas's best performance i think he's incredible in this and he because it's like the way that you navigate that scene of gaslighting that he does like when he comes into the bedroom Mm -hmm. and he tries to tell her like we have to tell your mom and he basically just like uh makes it all her fault like he just puts it all on her and is basically like okay well you know at that that i wrote down that line that like broke my heart where he's like uh yeah he's like I've never been able to refuse you. And then he says, okay, let's try things your way. You know, like that shit, just the way that he act like that, the writing is so good, obviously, but then the way that he handles that, because he really does try to, he does that thing where it's like, he is the reasonable one. Right. You know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, and you just watch this little girl just be so confused. Uh, Like, I don't like, yeah. Yeah. That is just one of the most like disturbing things in the movie. Just that scene where he's convincing her. I mean, and you know, obviously there's a lot of terrible things happening in this movie, but 
that was just that really got to me because it's such a manipulation of 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 like his own daughter just so sick mm-hmm. and yeah. yeah he is excellent in that scene and, and the girl's performance is great too it's yeah, she's, just, it's such a hard scene to perform. And um, I think in one of those interviews with Flanagan, uh, he said that Henry Thomas really struggled with that scene because he had a daughter about the same age as that girl. And he was like, oh, fuck. So he not only has to film the like actual bench scene, which is disgusting and traumatic, and then he has to film this gaslighting scene. And I, I think that 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 whole scene, I mean, they, they did some dialogue changes and some shortening uh, editing from the book, but it was almost verbatim from the book. And I think we all flagged that as the most disturbing scene in the book, mm-hmm. too. It's just like yeah. such a betrayal. And like she, it's and uh, be- betrayal is a big theme. Betrayal of trust. Yeah, because she acknowledges herself in the movie that that's even worse than what actually happens on the bench because of just that 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 betrayal just shatters her confidence going forward. Um, for any yeah. relationship, um, and and one of the things I actually started wondering, uh, revisiting it, and and also watching it with my girlfriend Sammy, uh, do you feel that her mother, who's actually played uh, by another regular, Flanagan's wife, uh, Kate uh, Kate Siegel, um, do you feel like Tom's wife? Um, do you think she knew? Because she gets almost like this weird sort of, um, uh, like like loathsome hatred towards. Uh, you know, towards Jesse, and it's almost like comes from a, like a place of like jealousy, almost like how could he like her? And you know, I think at least he, unconsciously, she knew she didn't want to admit that some she thought maybe that he was capable of something like that or something was going on just from their first fight in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. It, it's almost like she almost says something, and and it's like she just it's horrified of coming to the realization of that, yeah. so she just like puts it off. It's almost like she um, wants him to to admit it. Um, I know, and it's horrible. I mean, any anybody in in that situation, it's it's a it's an awful, awful thing. And like, I, but I I think that she plays that really well because you 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 get why she's not confronting him. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah, it's just like she can't even come to the grips with the reality of like confronting that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, and and Jesse even says something. And again, I'm trying not to place the stuff from the book, which is so fresh in my head, into the movie narrative because they are two separate entities. But in the movie, she does say, like, oh, I had to protect my little sister mm-hmm. from this. And, for, you know, I never felt like a part of the family ever again. And, and that conversation they have right before the family goes on the boat, she's like, oh, you know, she's such a daddy's girl. Like, there's clearly an, a preexisting resentment. And, like, she's, you know, she's hitting puberty. Um, that's always, like, a challenging mother-daughter time anyway. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a complicated question. It's like, I definitely don't think she, on any level, consciously knew or thought that but she definitely was you know the lizard brain is detecting mm-hmm. these weird energies and 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 jesse i think you know the way that she represses the memory and and the way that she decides never you know because of her father's gaslighting we'll never talk about it, it it's she's she's supporting that family structure because she knows that this secret would tear them apart and it could tear her apart because of the horrible shit that her dad put in her head um and and really she was the one because of his manipulations, locking it down. Yeah. Um, and, and that's that's really what has burdened her this whole time. Um, so I, I do think, you know, and it obviously probably destroyed her relationship with her mother as much as it did with her father. It destroyed her whole family. And she was the one that had to really live with it. Mm-hmm. And whether or not this the that scene at the kitchen, t- um, not the kitchen, uh, at the dinner table when she breaks the glass in her hand, yeah. whether or not that's 
true to life and or if that's like how she remembered it kind of thing but that shot where he's walking her takes her hand and walks her away and she looks back at her family at the table and they're all looking at her and it's just like and it goes dark yeah yeah. she's yeah and she's she's like leaving like she'll never be a part of that family you know what i mean like it's Mm -hmm. just it's so well done that scene and and yeah it's uh like, yeah, yeah, it gave they, me it gave me goosebumps. I'm getting goosebumps thinking because like you sort of see her mom's face in the shadows as like the yeah. room grows dark, and it's just like oh, like you just it is exactly feeling like I'll never be part of them again. Like, and it's ugh. like they all it looks like they all maybe know they'll just they'll never come they'll never say anything and they'll never stop you know they'll never intercede. You know, it's just mm-hmm. it's and maybe that's just how she saw it. You know what I mean? Because it's it, we're seeing it through her memory, but that's even more tragic. It know? is. That, oh, yeah. That that no one's like he's taking her away and and the look on her face you know they know something's wrong but no one says anything it's like what do you do in that dynamic it's so awful here's a question um and this is just i I like to kind of play around with these questions and heroes and villains just because obviously they're dealing with the players that are in the movie had jesse uh come out with what happened with her father to gerald do you feel gerald would have still enacted that his own sort of like sorted fantasies. Um, I imagine there's two different Geralds, obviously one in the book, which I think would um, I'm, I'm unsure about the Gerald in the movie um, because I think that when, when Gerald initially uh, recoils and is like, well, we're trying to you know save the marriage. I think he, I, I think it until the venom starts to set in, I do think that he's trying to come from a place where he's going to, He's like, all right, well, maybe this is what we need. And I do wonder if that Gerald knew her past and her history, if, we'd, if he would even entertain the idea of doing that or would have been more sympathetic. I don't, I, I, I don't know if I can answer that, but what, do you, what did you infer? I feel like he might have still pushed the envelope. I don't know if he would have been like saying – his name's daddy and stuff yeah. like that. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. I, 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 off the daddy I, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I still think the handcuffs, like, I mean, you know, she was, she wasn't ever handcuffed. You know, I, I think, I still think he would have gone. I, th- I think you still have to believe that he would have gone that extra mile. I do agree with you, Mike. I, this version of Gerald's a little, I, I don't know, but then that's also like putting it in her court. Like, well, if you had just told him, mm-hmm. and it's like, eh, I don't know about that either. I think, yeah. I think yeah. he still would have, I think I their think, marriage still wouldn't have been great. I still don't think the sexual like intimacy would have been there. I still think all those problems, it would have just manifested in a slightly different way, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I think you can't really answer that because their marriage wouldn't be what it is if she felt comfortable enough to tell him that. Yeah. If she was, if she yeah. was comfortable enough with herself to admit that this happened to her and acknowledge it and work through it, their whole marriage is based on deceit and that's like the viagra thing again like you know they keep secrets from each other and and she said you know at one point i can't remember if it's gerald or jesse that says it toward the beginning like marriage it's all secrets this is what marriage is i guess um you know and 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 that's that's kind of the whole point is she wouldn't have ended up in this room handcuffed to this bed if x y and z hadn't happened you know it's all like this is like the, the final outcome of like this shitty timeline that she's in um yeah you also think, though, it's I mean, I guess like, yeah, I definitely agree. Like, you can't really answer that question. But, you know, he's somebody also who doesn't listen when she says no. And I think that says a lot yeah. about his like, like you yeah. can like you can like, I don't know, like you can have an understanding of someone's trauma. But if you are inherently the kind of person who doesn't listen, then 
you know it's it like, doesn't matter. like you're driven right. by co- you're driven by compulsion like mm-hmm. this isn't you're not driven by sort of like a mutual uh uh you know like we're both in on this kind of sexual for like like role play like he's into this because he gets power out of it. it like like the dark way to go with it is that if he knew she had her own trauma then he knows that that power that he exerts in those moments yeah. affects her even more mm-hmm. that means it would get him off even more because that's what he gets off on is yeah. the fear and right. so that's like i think the scary like the scarier way to look at it but obviously i mean the thing is like you mentioned um that this is like maybe a softer version of Gerald uh, earlier, Lara. And I mm-hmm. think that, yeah, because, and I think that that's true too, because if there's one moment that I found myself a little bit perplexed by, and I think this speaks to Flanagan's inherent, like he has this deep well of empathy, like oh, for totally. his yes. characters in he, all he totally, of his movies. He totally does this. Yeah, I know. Go ahead. Yeah, he just, like, loves his characters, like, especially in, like, Hill House and everything. Like, it's hard for him to create a straight villain, you know? And so he, uh, so I think that, like, at the end when she drives away and she sees that version of of Gerald that, like, waves to her and smiles. And she's, it, it's, right. maybe, it's maybe, like, the version of him that she fell in love with. Like, that's the kind of moment we get in a Flanagan production that we don't really get in a Stephen King book. Because when King yeah. writes a villain, he, you know, he'll write complicated villains. But as I've talked about in the pod before, a lot of times his villains are just fucking villains you know yeah and and that's one of the critiques i do have of the movie is is the softening because in the book Mm -hmm. when she you know when she gets up off the bed she like steps on gerald and he like farts out of his mouth or whatever and he's like blow his bloated corpse and like that's but i think that that's the more honest jesse that's the jesse we want to see because it's like well you know what fuck you you tried to rape me and then you had a heart attack and you left me fucking handcuffed to a bed you piece of shit like fuck this shit i'm fucking out of here sorry i just got a little out of hand i'm sorry (laughs) this is now you can't put it on itunes i'm sorry no no, Um, i had a question too though i had a question about gerald and uh her father tom in the book is tom also really slovenly and like gross or is he no. just like the henry thomas-esque kind of guy because He's i felt henry like that's thomas. What, see yeah because I, I felt like that's where that where that idea came from was like they're like okay we want gerald to be more like her father and like she married her father like he's generally good looking guy like there's, yeah. you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily peg him for that kind of a person at all unless you really you know because he's manipulative and deceiving um, so and and I I, I I wrote that down too that that weird moment where she sees him and he kind of waves, and it's I felt really it was really strange at the end of the film there because I I, I just wasn't, I wasn't sure what that was supposed to be I was like is this is this is he always gonna be like you think that she wouldn't be seeing these people anymore she just got out of this thing. But it was like, is is this like saying that he's he's always going to kind of haunt her, or like, is yeah. this like, is this her, the version of her that she's seeing in you know him playing her kind of like, I don't, like I'm like like I, I can say goodbye to you now because I've used you for what I need you to to get out of the situation. I, yeah, I did think that it was a little confusing having that shot because I didn't know what they were trying to say with it. Yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and say it doesn't work. Should have ended it with putting the wedding ring and. Jabert's large hand yeah um, but that's I mean that's I, I do this is where my little criticisms are going to come in and I think it really does come down to Flanagan wanting to be a little too nice at moments and I and I think I think it's important to the survivor narrative that she taps into her anger and one thing that they they took out of the narrative in the film is um 
you know, she has this flashback also in her childhood of, of punching her brother when her brother gooses her. Um, and we talked, like, Jen really talked about this a lot, that, like, when you have trauma, you store it in your body, um, and it kind of comes out, and it comes out in these, like, violent little explosions, and whether or not the person that ends up on the other side of your fist <clears throat> deserves it or not, that is what's, that is an outcome of trauma. And in the book, um, she kicks Gerald and that's what triggers yeah. the heart attack, you know, because she, he is about to rape her and she knows it. And so she ab- and absolutely does the right thing and fucking kicks his ass. And then he fucking dies on her. Um, and, and, you know, and she, and then she has this, this realization that when she punched her brother for goosing her, it was because she was finally lashing out at her dad mm-hmm. for what he did. Um, and we, we get all of that stripped out of Jesse. We definitely, she's a fighter, not taking any of that shit away from her, but I did find it a little like, come on, like just like that, that was like not quite getting it. Um, whereas I was actually surprised by how well the book got the anger that needs to happen as a result of processing trauma. Um, yeah, I agree. That's my lady's perspective. No, no, no. And, and that's, <laughs> that's why I brought up the question because, um, there's a, there's a sympathetic nature to Gerald that I was shocked to not see when I read the book. Um, and one of the things that was staggering to me is just how unsympathetic he is in the book versus in this movie. And it's not just Greenwood's charming face. It's, it's literally the pauses, the dialogue that they're able to have, the fact that they're able, she's able to like, be like, get these fucking handcuffs off me right now. And he stops. And then he has the turns like, what if I don't take them off? And he, and then he kind of tries to, you know, play again, but you never get, yeah, you're right. I mean, you never get that sense of like her just being like, fuck off, get off, like get off me. It's this very, like, they're still talking and that's when he gets the the heart attack. And I think that's, I think there's some sort of, there's a, there's a disparity there. Um, and, and, and I don't think that, and I wonder if it's because he uses Gerald, as one of her voices that that's why he made the change so that when we Mm -hmm. see gerald pop back up we kind of are not so like uh we're not recoiling i'm I'm wondering if that's why he made that change but it is very abrupt and it's very like i mean not not only not only do we see a little bit more um you know bedroom talk between them but we also see them leading up to the cabin, which is something that you don't even see in the book at all. Like it literally starts in the book, like when they're in the room already. Um, yeah. And that's those changes. I think it, it feeds into the idea that, yeah, you're right. Like Flanagan, can't, he, I don't know if it's that he can't make a villain. I think he just wants to um, show us the darker side of, of, of the humans. It's like, it's almost like he can't have a villain that, that doesn't show some point of origin, um, which in a way can be Kingian, but for the most part, like some of the biggest King villains, we don't really see the point of origin. Like we don't know why Bowers is Bowers. Um, we don't know why Ace is Ace. Like they are just who they are. And yeah, and I, I, I do kind of wonder what this movie would look like if Gerald was just starting from um, that CD place, like that, 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 that awful place, you know? Yeah. And I, it's, it's complicated. It's, it's nuanced and I don't, you know, I, I, I I prefer the King version of this character for a lot of reasons. I think it's more thematically appropriate. I think it's just, but I, I can't say that this version is wrong. It's just a different character. It's just, yeah. a, it is, a, you know, with those subtle changes, you get a different character. Yeah. Do you think they did that because of the, like the era in which they're shooting this film? Like, is it as believable that she would stay with this disgusting guy who's like treating her like shit in this day and age where like divorce is more prevalent and and not like this thing that you shouldn't do and 
you know, I mean, not, you know, some cultures obviously, but like, do you think like when he was writing this, that was still like a very like, Oh, you know, like it's very taboo to like end things and she's trapped in this marriage. And do you know what I mean? Like made, made it seem like, okay, well he, he's, we have to make him a little bit more of a, like, we understand why she's still with him. But he's just really manipulative. But yeah, I mean, I think they I don't think I it's think they like could have done that. And like the father was manipulative. And like, I mean, I think they could have done that and, and amped up his shittiness just a tiny bit. Like, I yeah. think that the, the moment in the book is like and it's again, it's a hard moment to film. But I think it was really important and, and is super relevant to today, which is, you know, she he looks at her when she's handcuffed and she realizes that he knows that she knows that it's not like a game, you know, that mm-hmm. like she, he knows yeah. that she's saying no, but he's choosing not to know. And, and he's going, and he's, and, he's, and she, she goes through this whole thing in her head, like, Oh, if I had to go explain this to the cops or the judge, like, Oh, you mean you came to the cabin with your husband and you let him handcuff you to the bed, but then you wanted to say no. And like, what would that look like? And it's such a scandal and da, 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 you know, and how embarrassing yeah. it would be. And, and I think that that's still something that women do. And, you know, not just women, anybody that's a, you know, a, a somebody that is getting assaulted somebody that is being victimized like that is a thought process that you go through and is still really really prevalent so i think to like make those changes like um it softens the punch a little bit i think there's still so much that's awesome in this movie thematically and scares wise and everything but i do think it it softened the punch a little bit and i don't know why he chose to do that i think there's a lot of reasons he could have chosen it but i disagree i don't think he should have yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. Should we, um, um, totally. If we're gonna talk about the Moonlight Man, who's like the you know the main third one, Carol Strickland, can we talk about him in Nightmares and Dreamscapes, considering that he's such a polarizing character <laughs> in this? Yeah, movie sure. Especially? Yeah. yeah let's well, do it. should we talk about the dog first before we move <laughs> oh, on? Oh yes, because that, that's that's uh, Lars' uh, favorite uh, from the book, I believe, right? Yeah, he was my favorite boy from the. He's a little, a little worse in the movie. I think that strangely he chose to make the dog worse of all, yeah. of, all of them. Okay, Mike. Okay, Mike. I don't know. Um, Dog's just an animal, you know. Uh. Yeah. No. I mean, it's it's interesting. I yeah. She. I mean, like I, I still in in the book we get a chapter from the dog's POV, and obviously that would have been I think a little silly if trying to do anything like that or give give him his backstory. Although I like who, who would have voiced the dog. Oh boy. <laughs> Bill Camp. Let's see who was it. No. Oh, oh. Bill Camp. Had, what's the voice that's like? Oh, I'm just so sad. Like the little droopy voice, like you know, oh, like, been, like Peter Laurie or something. Like, Peter Laurie would Peter be great. Laurie. Yeah. yeah. Like, get Dana like, Carvey oh, to do it. You know? um, just down on my lawn. I just, I think we need, we need Belushi in there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what are you talking about? This girl's a babe. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I was looking at your feet. I thought you were dead. <laughs> hey, can you turn on the TV? I think the Cubs are playing. Um. <laughs> you want you want a piece of the you want a little piece of this? You want some of the meat? No, you're not hungry. Sorry, I just okay. felt like you know we were having a very very great discussion about the themes of this book, and I just threw some levity in there. It's good I, hey, in between categories. This guy tastes I, better than deep dish. Yeah. I'm, I'm loving it. I'm loving it, guys. Uh, God, um, fire up the is, grill. It, we got some Kobe steaks already. Um, <laughs> steak? Hey, but anyway. I'll take Portillo's any day. <laughs> Portillo's? Uh, God, do they do delivery out here? I can't get my cell phone service. Um, 
God. Uh, yeah, uh, I love yep. the dog. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I'm, I think that German Shepherds get a bad name, uh, you know, obviously for, for many reasons. Uh, see World War II. Uh, but I, I think um, this dog, I think there's a, there's a tender heart. Um, that's beyond the one that he's eating uh, from Gerald. So. <laughs> well, I'm glad they don't kill him in, in the movie because they kill him in the book. Aww. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and, really? In the, in the book, like, he doesn't go as far as to, like, nibble on Jesse, so I, I still felt like they had a chance where she could have, like, been like, hop in the car, buddy, and they could have driven off into the sunset. But in the book, he's, like, chewing on her foot and shit. And, like, oh, you know, so it's, like, it's pretty much like, okay, well, we've crossed some boundaries here. We can't be friends. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. What if uh, we, should we what move if, on to Nightmares and Dreamscapes, Mike? Yeah, let's go for it. All right. If you think your dreams are disturbing, <laughs> imagine the nightmares of Stephen King. Welcome to Nightmares and Dreamscapes. This is where we uh, talk about maybe some of the more polarizing moments in this. So yeah, let's start with the Moonlight Man. I, I personally am a big fan of the character, but I want to hear your guys' thoughts. Yeah, so my my con- my point of contention is that I I get why uh, the Moonlight Man um, you know has to be uh, Ray Javert, and especially for thematic reasons and the fact that like Flanagan is sticking literal to the the source material. Um, but I think it does a disservice to the movie uh, narratively. I just think that, um, I, and maybe not narratively, but uh, structurally for the movie, um, because it, the the movie spends so much time. Uh, discussing Jesse's past history, the sordid history with her father and with Gerald, that the idea of having like a literal killer uh, or some serial killer in there, it just seems to kind of um, feel tertiary in in ways that don't really earn it so much for me in the ending. And I get that it's supposed to be an encapsulation of of um, her her views towards um, you know the toxic masculinity and, and and what what have you. But for me, it just seems like such a long bridge especially when you get towards the end to be like oh this thing that's felt like a manifestation of of the the delusions and and um the 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 mania that she was experiencing that moment there's actually another whole like backstory to this person it just felt so like um even now and watching in hindsight two years later like that whole extended epilogue with with uh jobert it just it kind of detracts away from for me like the 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 sort of impact of the movie itself like get that it makes sense and it, and, 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 and it has a lot of empowers a lot of the themes at hand and i don't know how you would execute it otherwise but for me it just it felt like a little too um ham-fisted in in a way yeah, I I agree, Mike. I I think watching it this this second time around, it didn't land as well for me as it did the first time. It really did feel like, wow, you're you're explaining way too much yeah. about this this whole situation with this guy. Like they go way too far into like his backstory mm-hmm. and finding his you know his aunt and uncle or whatever, all that stuff. And it, it, you don't need all that serial killer stuff. I I love the use of the Moonlight Man in you know, while she's in the room oh, totally. and all, yeah. like, I like the idea that like maybe that one night he was there when she first sees him, you know, kind of in the corner and then maybe he left and never came back, but she kept seeing him or thinking that maybe he was there and that the rest of it was just in her head. And it's fine if later on you find out that he, that man was real, 
but to go into it as much as they do, I felt like it was a little un- it's a little unnecessary or maybe it worked better in the book. I, I don't know. I again, I haven't read the book, but for me this second time around that that's still it just goes a little too far and it, it it does detract I feel from the story they're trying to tell already um it feels like a different movie all yes. of a sudden like we've yeah. just kind of shifted for like 15 minutes into another film that just like and then it just ends so um yeah I still think the Moonlight Man is just the one of the, that is one of the scariest things I've seen in a long time. When she yeah. first sees him in the corner, yeah, the way they shoot that, there's no sting, there's no jump scare. He just kind of he's there, and you can your eyes adjust and you see him there, and it's just horrifying. Well, he's Flanagan's really good at doing this, and this is something that I've noticed by revisiting a lot of his uh, you know filmographies. Is that image of the Moonlight Man in this movie is clearly something that's that's that that hits him in a way that strikes a nerve um, because every one of his movies seems and tends to have um, a similar figure and the way they emerge and the way that it, the perspective and the ratio kind of shifts uh, before I wake the creature when it first comes out looks very similar uh, to the Moonlight Man's uh, design here um, the, the the cane the top hat uh, man from the Haunting of Hill House um, Oculus too, really just even the the ending, yeah. Yes, in the Oculus yeah, as well. Yeah. Um, even there is aspects of Ouija when um, there are certain manifestations that come. Um, yeah, it's it's something that Ouija. you could tell is like an <laughs> you could tell like a, the tall figure is something that really um, affects him, and he definitely brings he manifests those nightmares on screen. I mean, like when you first see it appear uh, in the darkness, it is so jarring. And even when she gets out and she's she walks to him and gives him the ring um that's incredibly powerful and terrifying at the same time especially when you kind of see him lingering just standing there at the end of the hallway um it's very jarring and for me if i was playing producer or director here i just think even just the note that like they they couldn't find the ring says everything that's all you need to know and like and i think like the the idea of like the detective well we never found the ring or something like that or her mentioning that is just that's like that that sort of like um that, that that sort of like acknowledgement of like the ring being missing is such a personal thing that like having that little sort of Hemingway knot at the end there would have been so much more effective to me and far more um uh believable and and also um works more in tangent to like everything else in the film um so that's how I kind of would have remedied it if you would ask me but um yeah. well yeah well, well, you got Lara. Okay. Well, we had this in the book. It's, you know, it's relatively similar, um, but it has more room to breathe. And it's sort of being, it's being revealed through this letter she's writing to her friend about what happened. And there's just a lot more details that go into it that I think make it somewhat work. I still criticized it um, because I think, like you said, it feels like suddenly a different type of story. It feels like a different, it felt like a different movie. It felt like a different genre of horror within the book. Like suddenly we're in like pulp paperback territory when we were in like high psychological dread. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and it's just kind of jarring and weird, but uh, you know, the, the, the point in the book was exploring it through to the end in order to like say like no believe her like this really wasn't some like hysterical fan you know yeah. fiction she was having she she needed to go and face him to tell herself you know I will no longer be haunted by this thing like I'm facing the last of my fears and and I, I 
I like that as a conceptual gesture, um, but I think it didn't really work, you know, for all the reasons you just said in the movie. And, and also that last sequence feels so rushed and it's like the yeah. che- all the cheesy things like I'm doing VO through a letter and telling you about how my life is better now. Mm-hmm. And also here's a bunch of news clippings like, you know, <laughs> and, and, like all just like let's hit every cliche and it. Yeah. It takes a lot of the power out of it, um, and I think if you were d- to do a cinematic adaptation, I think the like the ring missing and seeing, you know, a photo where you see the footprint on the floor or something might have been mm-hmm. enough, um, you know, to and and feel much more horror movie, you know, like psychological dread horror movie than what we got. Yeah, yeah, I do feel like it's an important theatric or thematic moment, but it does. I agree with like everything you guys are saying. It's just like. I still I, th- I the thing is I like the presence of the Moonlight Man so much I find it so striking and scary and I love the horror like it's the moment that feels very Kingian in it in a way that I think I think like the early appearances of the Moonlight Man and I love like the one in the car too and I love when his eyes are glowing red like I yes. think those are really cool moments because that's the beast becoming that's as it exists in her mind and it's be it's mm-hmm. just like it's just like the specter of her father in a lot of ways too which grows more like that's the thing when you suppress trauma it becomes more it becomes stronger in your head it becomes more of a monster in your head and that and then so there there's power in the idea that you know she forces herself to go and confront him and she realizes that he's just a person and he's just like a sick fuck and you know and she says you're smaller than i thought you'd be uh it's those are moments that and then you know and you see sort of the monster wither a little bit like he withers a little bit when she's which she says that to him. Is it heavy handed? Like, absolutely. But I still find, and I, I I also agree with you guys. Like, I don't love the ending either because it just feels so tonally weird and structurally weird. But at the same time, like, I still find that moment affecting because I think that as a theme, it does put a nice, like, cherry on top of the theme. Is it wholly necessary? Not really, but I'd rather, I don't know. It's like, it's, it's not enough to really, like, ruin it for me. And the way that, yeah. and the way that, um, Flanagan phrased it because I talked about the ending a little bit. He said, uh, one of the things that I knew going into this is that we are going to be do this as faithful to the book as possible. And that means that half my audience is going to hate my ending. If I do it right, you know, if I really honor him, half the readers hated the ending of the book. It's the same ratio. There was the sense of, look, I can swing away from that, but I don't want to bring in that same polarized response that his material naturally generates. But instead, I try to presume that I could fix something. But instead, I try to presume that I could fix something for him because I love the ending and the book was perfect. But I know a lot of people felt differently, you know. So he's said he basically was going to like lean into it and he said uh the only goal for me was to recreate the experience that i had reading it which was such a wonderful experience for me it's not my goal to change it or make it more or less palatable for certain people if i can recreate the way i felt when i put that book down great if someone else felt differently when they put it down odds are they're going to feel differently when they stop my movie to me that's the goal so uh yeah i I just think that's such a cop-out though because like i think that and i still do two years later because i I think that like if (laughs) it's if it's clearly a polarizing ending then try to fix it like I, I just don't like if you literally have proof in the pudding that like it's that that you have a polarized ending here why would you want to lean into that like it, it seems to me like well i th- <laughs> no go for it, i go think for it. mike that he i know i think he kind of i think this was a you know this is this was a passion project of his so i think that he might have had some blinders on in terms of like being faithful as faithful as possible i feel like if he hadn't done this would we be, would we be having the conversation like where's the moonlight man and 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 what would that ending have looked like and da, da 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 and i think that he kind of eventually attempted to do that with dr sleep you know 
he does. Oh, he, t- he def- definitely learning does. from his mistake. You know, I think he had to do this to realize, okay, I kind of got this out of my system. Like this is this is like step, stepping back and then going forward. Like, okay, maybe I can take some more chances. Like people know, like okay, I'll be, I can be faithful to something, but at the same time, like I, I, I'm willing to take some chances and fix some things that maybe didn't work. Um, well, the irony, yeah, I, I agree. I don't think this works 100 percent at the end. I, I get it. It's just like we were saying earlier about how the 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 movie is almost it's almost like a stage play uh, in ways mm-hmm. uh, because it's just it's just that one room. It feels very performative at the end. Yeah. I mean. She's walking down the aisle. Everyone's like, "What?" And everyone lets them have this exchange. Yeah, <laughs> I kind of hate he breaks, that. Even I hate when he it. breaks yeah. free right. from the chains, yeah. he so breaks jarring. free from the chains, and he's standing there. No one's doing anything. It's, yeah. it's very like it's almost like, are we still in her head? Yeah, and that's not what they're trying to do. So it's just a very, it's a little strange how it's played out, but. Yeah. You know, what can you do? Well, he, the, and it's because, you know, in the book, they had all those details where it's like she has this lawyer friend who, like, sneaks her mm-hmm. in and then, like, she sneaks up behind. You know, it's like just things to make that moment at least feel like like he's paying attention to the details of how this would play out. And it just, yeah, it feels so over the top in the movie. And it's like, no, 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 no. This is all the wrong vibes, you know. Um, but, yeah. He, but do? he does that again. And, I mean, Randall can speak to this, too, because I actually don't mind this ending. But, like. One of the things that everyone hated with Haunting a Hill House was the ending um, because it gets into this very Hallmarkian sort of um, uh, too much very, sentimentality. Yeah, there's a lot of sentimentality. And it's funny because, Mac, you're right with Dr. Sleep. He did try to create his own signature. And I've seen a lot of constant readers who love the ending for Dr. Sleep. I don't know why. Um, the book um, actually feel like they were it was like kind of like a betrayal because they he changes the ending because um, spoiler alert in Dr. Sleep. Um, there's a character who doesn't die and you know he clearly dies in the in, in the movie yeah. and a lot of people felt like that that sort of uh, course correct because he did that strictly so that he can kind of um, find some sort of um, uh, he could kind of clean up a little bit with Kubrick on the Kubrick side of things because he wanted to be able to still bring home the the, the sort of Jack come around um, a lot of people had problems and issues with that. So I guess it is kind of like the damn if you do, damn if you don't sort of thing. I, I still think, though, that there is a better way to have executed this, even beyond just the idea I had with the ring thing. Like, I don't think you need to get so performative with the courthouse thing. You also, I also feel like even aesthetically, the movie sort of takes on um, a sloppy role. Like, it's not as um, it's not as stylistic as, as the rest of the movies. Like, when you're literally standing in the courthouse and he's just kind of standing there, like the makeup even effects for Carol Strickland look really sloppy. Um, and... I don't know. And and even like the final shot of her just like walking downtown, it, it just felt so like um, like student film in, in a way. Like I, I, it's just sorry. I don't mean to harp on this, but it's like it's literally the only thing I can think of that I don't really like about this movie. Um, and yeah. and it's still something that I tried to. Well, like, that's why we're spending time on it. I yeah. Mean, yeah. I, I, it's, it's understandable. Um, I actually liked liked the very very last shot because it parallels the shot of the eclipse. It's yes. like the sun, and but but I, I so I wouldn't go as far as to say student film, but I totally agree. It feels like ham fisted compared to the rest of the movie, like much less much less meticulous and yeah. like paced and thoughtful. No, I love the symmetry. Like the symmetry with the the, the sun is great. I just meant like when she's too, like the slow mo of her walking down the street. It was just I know, like, All right, and it's cheesy. On. It's it's fucking cheesy. Like, um, yeah. But yeah, I. Um, but yeah, I mean, honestly, like in terms of like the the nightmares of this movie, like that's literally the only thing that I I have, that, that, and that's why I'm so like ha- you know hammering on it because it's just like it really reminds me of, uh, and I'm pretty sure I used this metaphor back then in 2017. It reminds me of the Russell Wilson 
um, <laughs> Super Bowl uh, fumble where they literally like lose the game because they just shit the bed at the, the last five seconds. And I, and that's kind of how I feel with this ending. It's just like, it's such a blemish on an otherwise, like for me, like just a perfect run. And I, I think I vividly remember watching the screener at, um, at my brother's house and his, uh, his wife was sitting next to me and she just like turned and was like, wait, what the fuck happened? Like, are we watching a different movie? And, <laughs> and it was just, and we were still just like, I can't believe, I, I think we were like went on the balcony and talked about it for like 30 minutes. Just being like, did that, did that really happen? Like it felt so surreal. It felt like I woke up into a dream or something like that. Um, I don't know. Well, what's also mm-hmm. great about this though, Mike, is that if anyone was like, what's an adaptation of Stephen King? That's like, the most representational is Stephen King. I would say, oh yeah, watch watch Gerald's game, yeah. because it's so faithful. It's like all of his books, to some extent, have like that weird turn, or you know, like it, yeah, it's just like something something's in there that's not quite satisfying. Like I, I don't know. Like I think a lot of people don't love like that have read The Shining don't love the ending of The yeah. Shining, the book. Um, and it's, I think it's like, if you can watch Gerald's game and, and, and pull what you need to pull from it and enjoy intensely as much as you are enjoying that first, you know, 75% of the movie, 80%, um, and then, and then watch the end and be like, okay, I get this. I get, I get Stephen King. I get, I get it. Um, and I'm down to watch more. I think that it's, it's kind of done. It's, it's thing, but yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's hard. It is a damned if you do damned if you don't, but I, it's not enough for me. It's not enough to detract from the stuff that I love. Mm-hmm. And that's why it affects, that's why it doesn't really affect my rating so much yeah. in terms of like, you know, telling people whether or not they should see this film. Yeah. Um, I, so I read this book when I was really young and it was, you know, I didn't get a lot of it because I was just, you know, uh, a little too young to really process a lot of the complexities. But one thing that I, I've always remembered, and I want to make sure I'm not misremembering. So, Laura, uh, since you just read it, does Jobert have a necklace of penises? <laughs> he sure does, Randall. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I've always remembered that because I, I remember I found it so gross and like shocking when I was like yeah he, they, there's a lot of stuff with dicks in him in the book yeah like he, he likes to like blow dead guys and, and then he's got a necklace of dicks and yeah he's just dicks all the way down so Which, he was like a Dahmer Dahmer type dicks all the yeah, way down I, I said uh, last week he was a combination of Ed Gein and Albert Fish because mm. uh, he also like molests and blinds a child or something and Ugh. you know and, uh, yeah he's they, he goes into so much detail in the book about all of his lurid crimes you know and it's like you know so I was reading it like okay we get it okay he's great we get okay oh, okay there's more okay now we got the necklace of dicks okay all right. uh, if only if only Flanagan would have included like a scene of him like blowing a dead guy that would have been just yeah really like, sent we this have over. to be faithful <laughs> uh Mike oh, do you think it's time to to head into uh the cemetery uh I see Lewis Creed walking up over the deadfall and I think we should follow him <laughs> <laughs> let's do it what's the bottom of the truth well sometimes that is better the person you put up there ain't the person that comes back it may look like that person but it ain't that person because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all 
Welcome to the cemetery. This is where we talk about uh, the things we find a little bit spooky, maybe. So, uh, what 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 would you say are some of the, like? Because it's actually fun. Cause sometimes we watch these and we're like, there was nothing. Like we watch Sleepwalkers, we're like, this was not scary. Yeah, I but, think that was uh, a, this... oh my, I can't believe you guys watched that. Uh, <laughs> we <laughs> had so to, hey man. We Watch read your response about uh, it too in the ranking, Mac. Uh, yeah, it's something else. Yeah, it's not, <laughs> not good. Uh, the scares in this though are are are, uh, are mm, chef's chef's kiss. Uh, maybe it's just me, but the hand scene really got to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, the glove scene. Man, it is about? nasty. Hand, hand, in, hand in glove, yeah. Uh, no, I mean, that was, I, like, I knew it was coming, and I was so excited to see how they were going to do it. And I was literally like, I'm, like I said, I'm normally, like, pretty strong stomached, but that was like, <gasps> like I was, <laughs> I'm sorry, that probably just, like, peaked really bad on the, no, that's cool. <laughs> on even the levels. Even having seen it before, I still, I, like, I c- almost covered my eyes mm-hmm. multiple times. Like, you're just like, oh, like, it's so, yeah. it is d- done so realistically. Uh, it's so hard to watch. Uh, great, man, great. It's, it's so effective. I tried to find out if it was, like, all practical effects, and I'm assuming it is because it really looked like it. I was trying to, like, dig up how exactly they did it. I wanted to see, like, the behind-the-scenes Fangoria thing about it, you know, but, like, I mean, it was just so well done. Like, excellent, excellent. Yeah, he, he talks about that in one of the interviews I was reading about how a lot of it comes down to the sound design. Um, yeah. And, and it's, cho- it's he's totally right. I mean, it's because it's what you don't see, you do hear. And... It is so effective. I, I mean, I don't get squeamish about a lot of things. I mean, I literally follow, um, I'm going to give her a shout out, uh, Mrs. Angemini, uh, who's on, on Instagram, who works with uh, coroners and, and morgues. And so every day I get to see, you know, dead bodies and limbs and stuff like that. So, and n- n- none of that stuff usually affects me. And, oh, great. And, but like this, <laughs> this part, so much. I know, right? Um, but like, <laughs> yeah, no joke. I, I, I just, blo- like, look somebody's you know bleeding from a, like a wound or something like that there's like literally like legs that'll be chopped off won't affect me if shit comes out i'm running out the, uh, over the hills but um <laughs> but with this yep, like it really I feel that. right yeah so for this this, yeah. this really fucking like like is effective because it's i think a lot of it comes down to like um you've just spent so much time with this one person and mm-hmm. and and I, and I think because it's just this one person, maybe that's why it's more effective. I don't know. It just it, it really hit me hard. Well, like, Mike, I think the thing that that I keep going back to is Carla's scream yeah. during that sequence, and she sells the fuck out of that sequence. Mm-hmm. Like you believe she's pulling on her skin. You know what I mean? Like it. It's just it's this guttural yell that's just kind of like the same yell con- you know, over and over. Like it is just, I, I think she's great in that sequence. I think she sell, sells mm-hmm. the hell out of the reality yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah. And you've been, oh, we've you've spent all the, Oh, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll just say really quick. We spent all this time getting like psychologically tortured with her. And I felt the same way in the book. So by the time you get to the hand scene, it's like you've, you're so worn down and you just want her to be free. And so you're just like, your nerves are just like extra sensitized. And then you're like, Wah! you know, it, it really hits hard. And, and I agree that her performance is aces well it's such like and it's such a representation of sort of the emotional and and uh, internal turmoil right like it's so gruesome but it's like it's it's it, it matches like what you were saying laura it like matches everything that came before but what the thing is like we've seen decapitations we see people get shot in the head we see people get stabbed all the time like in movies so even when it's done effectively it's still kind of like oh well that was a cool mm-hmm. like a new 
a cool new way to do that. But we never see something like this. Like we never see flesh like stretched in that way. You know what no. I mean? Like no. like oh, the way God. that I know, like the way that it's like it's like a stretching quality. It's a splitting quality. It's like it's 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 so gross. And you actually do see the bones a little bit on her hand, like mm-hmm. when it's pulling. And it's it's these are things just that like you, the tendons and stuff. Yeah, it's ugh. these are things. Oh. I think that's why it's so impactful is because this is not stuff you see. Like this isn't like common horror fodder. Like this is a, a yeah. very new effect. Uh, I mean, obviously it's been another, th- like this similar type has been another things, but it's not something we see often. And I think that's why uh, I think it hits as hard as it does. And it's also just really well done. Like the effects are great. Yeah. The acting's great. And, yeah. it, and, and again, it comes like you were saying, Lara, it comes after we've, already witnessed so much uh psychological turmoil that it's it's almost this like catharsis you know this like mm-hmm. physical catharsis and that's mm-hmm. what i think what makes it so good but but uh but i gotta say like it's also such i mean i, I if, if if you watch this movie and you don't know like like mac you have not read the book like how did you feel the first time like the dog started eating bruce greenwood i know <laughs> well there yeah there was like there were things I remember when I was first watching it, the things that surprised me the most were I I was coming to the realizations that she was coming to through the during the movie. I wasn't like pinpointing anything ahead of time. So like even when the dog comes in the first time, you're like, oh, the dog, uh, you know, it's just a dog. But then when it starts like to eat the like the blood up and then you're like, oh, fuck. And then when it starts to try to eat the corpse i was just like fuck like like i i it was really cool to be on the journey with her like for some reason i wasn't looking at like it's a hard time for me to watch films and not constantly be thinking like okay what's nice what's nice what's nice what are they gonna probably do i was really just like in the moment because it's the way that it is filmed and the way that it is laid out you're able to just like kind of sit there in that in that sequence and just kind of watch these things unfold so yeah when when the dog starts pulling the skin off the arm and stuff and and hey kudos to that dog's performance uh just like you know when <laughs> just sitting there in that doorway eating that skin and 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 meat it was just like oh god i loved how like nonchalant they made it too like i mean we'll probably talk about this but with like there's no like score or things that are telling you how to feel and this dog is just kind of right. like walking in and out and is like i'm just just here chowing down like and it just makes it so much more upsetting because it's just like you just have to sit with it like she is you know right right yeah and i think that's like i think that that reveal and again like you're saying like the lack of score the lack of jump scares the lack of like uh deceptive editing like that's i i love all of that i think that the horror lands so much better in that regard and but for me it's like just the cat yeah like you say the casual quality the sort of like like it's it almost feels inevitable that of course the dog's gonna eat his dead body even though that seems insane but also the idea of being jesse watching your dead husband get eaten by a dog is really fucked up like even if he was an asshole like that's just so fucked up (laughs) and twisted and i love that about the movie but yeah for me it's like i think just the general idea of him being feasted upon uh and then also i think um the the eclipse effect for me is really spooky and it gets under my skin a little bit and then also just the moonlight man every single time he shows up i think it really works i love i don't like like you said the makeup effects seem weird when you see him in the in the courtroom and i think that's you know was the intention but i don't think it really works but the uh the way that those effects manifest in the moonlight like in the darkness uh and then also the ways that he elevates it 
once the Moonlight Man becomes a, uh, a manifestation in her head and he's got the glowing red eyes, that to me is really, I just love that as sort of like a classic horror movie image. Like it feels very like old school. Agreed. And then also uh, just, but that first shot of him in the darkness when he comes forward, like that stuff's just really, really good. I mean, in terms of uh, a pure horror movie, I think this is in in those sequences that to me is flanagan's best work i think uh mm-hmm. hill house also has incredible moments yeah uh, and he, he's got good horror moments and all of his stuff but for me it's like those moonlight man sequences the first ones and then the one in the kitchen and everything those to me are are peak flanagan horror he's so. really good at peripheral yeah, horror I love it. He, like that's the mm-hmm. thing like he's oh absolutely when it's in the distance and it just is just kind of looming there it's, it's awesome uh, yeah and and i think that you know, obviously this is uh, just, just him going ham on it because that's kind of all he has <laughs> because yeah. to play right, with. It's all about the things playing in your peripheral. What, yeah. what did you guys think about the moment where she wakes up from the flashback and the dog is licking her toes, but she oh, sees God. it as him like, like, like slobbering on her toe. Like that really was creepy to me. I think maybe it was, it was probably the most like going for it jump scare moment in the movie. That yeah. I thought, oh, you know, I, mm-hmm. I still it liked works. it. I thought it was creative. But, yeah. And with the eyes. I, yeah, I absolutely agree. The thing is, is that I think Flanagan, what Flanagan and a lot of directors don't know how to do is like, he, like, if that, there's there's a lot of movies where there, it's that scene over and over and over and over. Yeah, over again. yeah. And just having that scene be the one scene where all of a sudden she's like, he's like licking the little girl's toes or whatever in the flashback and then he she wakes up. Like, but they don't overdo that the rest of the movie. You know what I'm saying? Like, so it's okay that there's a, that one that's just like, ugh, like really jarring because yeah. you're right. not expecting it because that's the like movie's big, been really reserved. That's like a weird horror movie passion of mine is that like jump scares aren't bad. It's just that a lot of a lot of directors, that's all they know how to do. Exactly. And that's what yeah. drives me crazy is yeah. like, that's not a horror movie I want to see if it's just jump scares. Like, but if it, you give it me... It loses its power. Yeah, yeah, if you give me two or three, though, then that's fun. You I mean, because like me. Ari Oster has his jump scares. I mean, yeah, Hereditary exactly. is filled yeah. with them, but he doesn't lean on them. And, and he knows how to... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's welded in. You know, it's not like It Chapter 2 where it's just like right. the motor of the goddamn movie of all the scares, um, mm-hmm. you know. So I, yeah, for me, the 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 sense of where I'm at in this film is what really ultimately gets at me, um, and and I, the brutality of the consequences is what gets at me. And it's not just it's not just this the you know walking out of a theater being like, oh man, wasn't that crazy when the you know so and so jumped up and did that? No, it's it's the it's if someone asked me like what's scary about this movie, it it, it take a much longer description than just pointing to one scene and yeah that's what's kind of great but then again this movie has it, it you know gets you know it has its cake and it gets to eat it too and like because it has the 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 hand sequence i mean that's like an ultimate horror go-to moment that's going to be there for you know in 10 years uh, yeah. from now when people are talking about horror movies the last 20 years like that's going to still come up like you know and yeah that's totally cool. that's a cool moment to have especially as a director speaking of um, cake oh ooh. wait hold on you got you got There's, more Mac. Well, I just want to mention. I mean, we obviously already talked a lot about any scene with Tom, any scene with the dad. Is, yeah, it's creepy and scary. Yeah, but I really do love. I love that shot in the beginning where she realizes how isolated she is. Where the camera, you just see the camera pull back from the house multiple times, mm-hmm. and you and you just don't even hear her screaming at all. Yeah, I just love the idea. Like you're just like fuck. Like she is fucked. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's it's done so well. Where you're just like, ah, there's what are you gonna do? And that's like, and that's just, and that's definitely like him kind of trying to 
rip the pages from this to the screen because he spends so much time talking about like you know hearing a chainsaw that's you know from the distance or you know like was that person with the chainsaw like someone that was actually doing yard work nearby or you know like that's that's like that takes up so much of like the first uh quarter of the book is just her thinking about this type of stuff and like weighing in the distance and the time and all and so it was cool like to see flanagan kind of try to um bring that to the screen um you know yeah because it's those little things in those books you don't get to get to see but um, yeah yeah well look i'm hungry i'm really really hungry <laughs> This Although I don't know, there's a lot to eat here. Is yeah, there? I was gonna say I, I, I don't know, but <laughs> sure, let's let's have a little bite. After all you've been talking, everyone in bed, Mama, everything in the sin. Come to your closet and pray. Ask to be forgiven. He's a nice boy, Mom. You like him. You really like him, Mama. Welcome to Pound Cake. Pound Cake is the section where we talk about the weirdest, grossest, bluest moments in King. But I think Gerald's Game is sort of an odd duck because it's, uh, you know, it is a book that's sort of built on weird sex shit, but it gets mm-hmm. into sort of the real dark psychology behind the weird sex shit. So I think that, uh, was there any Pound Cake to be pulled from this? I don't think so. Um, the more I think about <laughs> it. I didn't have any, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, there there were, we, we flagged a few things in the book where it was like, eh, maybe that line went a little far, but I think, you know, all of that was, like, scoured out of this, you know, it just, because he, he, again, where I, I will give him credit as a, you know, for the screenplay is, you know, really good adaptation in terms of, like, wh- what he chose to stay in. There was something I, it was like, um, the, the, the line where they're talking about, you know, um, when she's talking about her dad at what he did. Um, there, there was a, I felt like it was almost like an alternative line to the book that, uh, was an improvement. It was still gross, but it felt gross, like purposefully and not like you've gone too far, Stephen, sit down. Um, it's, uh, when they're talking and Jesse says, like J2 says he smelled the blood and did what dogs do. Um, and she was talking about how that was like, you know, he, he did this to her, her father, right after she had her first period. Um, and in the book, they kept having this thing where like she was a complainer and the mom always called her the squeaky wheel. And so in the book they said, well, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, which we were all like, blah, like that's too much. And I feel like he thought, he thought about that line and and gave it an alternative that still got the same point across. So that was like the closest I could find to like a pound cakey moment. Um, But I thought it was, it was like a good edit. Yeah. Yeah. Everything's tasteful in this. And and, and this could have, you know, in lesser hands, this could have just been, fucking red shoe diaries uh but super exploitive yeah yeah I, I i will say just given how sexy both leads are um there's that there's kind of a, a sort of pound kick element to that too because you know yes the dialogue yeah. and the way it's all presented isn't uh, red shoe diaries but uh the two leads certainly are uh because this definitely isn't the average American couple um, <laughs> in the slightest. And I get that in, you know, reading the book, it is, um, you know, she makes m- many remarks that someone who's been suffering body dysmorphia all his life. Um, I, one of the things I really loved about the book was when she's actually talking about her, she's sitting there and she's just uncomfortable with like, she's like looking at her legs and she's like poking at her legs and stuff. And I'm just like, yes, that is exactly what it feels like. Like this would be a fucking nightmare because you'd have to sit with your body. And, and like that sort of like self deprecation really came through and it actually added a lot to the character. Um, 
And, you know, if I'm either of these characters, I'm going to probably be sitting there and be like, man, I got a fucking great body. Um, and if I'm Bruce Greenwood and I'm getting <laughs> eaten by the dog and be like, no wonder this dog wants to eat me. Like it's it's like <laughs> so like there's this is a stretch to say because we're kind of bereft of pound cake here. But that would be it would just be their their good looks being the only thing because they definitely lean on that for sure. And it's very Hollywoodized in that sense, um, mm-hmm. you know, because you, you couldn't just have, you know, like Carla from Cheers being, you know, uh, uh, Jesse here, or um, you know, um, Bill, as we said, Bill Camp as Gerald here. Carla as, from you Cheers. Know, um, I, I want to do a <laughs> casting that's only from like the greater Frasier universe, just yes. for this movie. Okay, Gerald would be Kelsey Grammer. Uh, oh my anyway, god! But yeah, and one other thing on that end is I I didn't like, and another thing I didn't like about the end, Coda, you know, is how hot she looks. Like at the, by the end of it, like she's just like, well, I had my little ordeal, and then yeah. I just went back to being totally polished and hot. And like in the book, even he's like, she's lost like thirty pounds, and mm-hmm. she's like haggard, you know, and all this because she's been through this extreme trauma. And I, in the in the movie, it's just so like, let's airbrush this thing. Yeah, uh, that bothered me. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I guess their thought was like I think they were like really obviously especially with that ending with the Moonlight Man I think they were really trying to drive home like you can get through this and come out like much stronger person and and I felt like if they showed that which I think is more realistic but I think if they showed that it would have been like a little bit like some people just never really quite are the same well, and, and you're not I, but like I think they kind of turned it into more of like a uh, it was like almost like too empowering in a sense. Yeah, and I get that that's what they were going for. She's line, like, I'm, but... s- yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to talk over no, you. No, no, yeah, 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 like, yeah, like, like she, yeah, exactly. And I think that's exactly like, you know, Stella got her groove back, and now she's <laughs> stronger than ever. And like, it was just a little too on the nose, you know. Like, yeah. like, yeah, like besides just the literal hand scars, like you're gonna come out of it with some scars. And I think, show, you know, they do show that she's like being haunted by the specter of this thing, and so to not have any like physical nods to that, just like the full face, like she just looks so good, you know. And yeah. it's like, yeah, again, yeah. I, I think I'm struggling with the maybe they're just too damn attractive thing. So, yeah. Well. Sorry, Carla. Problem. You're just too That's good looking. Problem. Yeah. Sorry, Carla. <laughs> but she, no, she, she's, she's, she's great. Don't, don't get me wrong. None of this yeah, is on no, her. Yeah. It's the all, performances yeah, yeah. Are, are stellar. It's just little, little decisions that were made. That's very Hollywood, yeah. I think. Yeah. Well, uh, is it time to, to venture into King's Dominion? Uh, I hear the bells are ringing oh, yeah. and I see a door. <laughs> I think we got a lot to discuss. Let's do it. There's another world out there. Welcome to King's Dominion. This is the part of the podcast where we talk about how this connects to the larger King universe. And one of the things that I was absolutely floored by when I first watched it was the fact that this film adaptation actually leans into the Dolores Claiborne connection. Yeah. Despite the fact that, you know, that it it has no direct payoff, but that's just... uh, it's just, uh, you know, Flanagan really embracing the larger world of King. And I've actually got a good quote about it from when I talked to him uh, because I was really fascinated. He brought it up. Um, he said, the eclipse in particular, that was for me kind of a hybrid between the way I remembered the scene from reading them the first time and from a certain amount of Dolores Claiborne presentation. I had seen that movie before I read this book. And when I was reading it, I was like, yeah, I saw the fiery red sky and I saw the boats on the water. And, you know, that kind of strange separation that seems to happen between the characters and the environment around them as the color become, became twilight, but then something sort of equally in tone. We have always tended to be very expressionistic. And then I asked him directly about the Dolores Claiborne reference. And he said, I've always 
always tended to love those moments. As a constant reader, you get this moment of delight when you make a connection between one of the books and another. And it's like you're part of the secret invisible web that connects all of this incredible universe together. Something that maybe not everybody's aware of. My sense with all of the books was like, yep, this is a little corner of that King universe. And when it's all taken together in context, it enhances itself. With this, I wanted to take excellent care of my little corner of the King universe. And I really so desperately wanted to kind of fire off little flares into the other areas of that universe that are already connected to the story. There were a couple that I tried to squeeze in just as a geeky fan, but the Dolores one, when it came by in the book, it was like, how do I not do that? I don't want to, I didn't want to knock people who were unfamiliar with the connection completely out of the moment, which is another risk you always run. But those two stories to me are two sides of a coin. I couldn't adequately tell that story without honoring that connection. It was very important to me. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it makes me wonder if that, you know, we've talked about how he's been discussing another movie that he's going to do that's involving uh, King and they've actually talked about it. I think it's going to be Rose Matter, but the fact that he leans so much into the Dolores Claiborne, um, you know, elements, it makes me wonder if he does want to make some sort of symmetry here and adapt. Yeah, that but there, he could easily follow through with that trilogy of sorts, you know? Yeah, it's just like, it's like the Dolores Claiborne movie is already pretty good. I know. And that's it's not thing. that old, you know? So It's not. Uh, like they haven't remade good movies before. I know, <laughs> but it's like it would just seem a little. I, like Flanagan's the yeah, strike. I feel you. Yeah, I got you. That, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I don't know, but I like that moment. I like, and I like that he kind of just finds a way to tie it to a, the larger themes. You know, like it's a vision that she has in that moment, and they talk about this whole idea of the well and the the well of secrets and the secrets that plague the marriage. And it does it does in a way like you know it feels a little bit out of place. Like if you don't know the reference, but it 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 doesn't distract because I feel like it is embedded enough in the narrative that you can accept it. So. Yeah, there there are there are a bunch of little nods that he, you know, puts in here. I mean, obviously the the the, the big one for us uh, you know, Dark Tower heads is when, you know, Gerald says all things serve the beam, which is funny yeah, because yep. he always in Doctor Sleep he does something too because he um, you know, he has Halloran say cause a wheel. And in hindsight yeah. it seems so <laughs> weird because it's like First off, would Danny even know what the fuck Ka is? And then, like, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's just such a fan token thing. Um, like, what is a bee? Yeah, Excuse exactly. Me? And, like, it's it's little things that you can kind of get like away with. But it's almost like you don't need to know. You don't need to understand yeah. it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, like, I know. These I are, still these love are, it. I love it. Well, yeah. I, I, no, I, I do, too. And I, I think it's because, like, it's coming from this this entity that's not really real it's almost in the back, the back of her mind is saying this thing mm-hmm. so it's like that's that's strange about gerald saying it the the vision of gerald saying it and then also in dr sleep you know it's it's someone that's already passed beyond these you know those other worlds and these you kind of thing you know mm-hmm. yeah and but if, um, you, if you if you look at it from like the king's universe thing maybe she does have a bit of the shine like the fact that she sees dolores like in the moment of the eclipse and you know and she you know does have a bit of, of the sight from the dark tower so saying mm-hmm. you could kind of like make a fun little argument for that like being part of the extended king universe. oh totally totally yeah like the situation kind of like enhances that or you know she's more in touch with that when this thing's happening yeah absolutely I uh, I don't know if this is a reference or whatever, but Gerald refers to the dog as Cujo. 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 That's like Cujo's cousin. It's Cujo's cousin? Yeah. Cujo's cousin. <laughs> He headed upstate. Um, he's like, I'm gonna have a vacation. Um, he's like, he's like, I hear human flesh is tasty. <laughs> I forgot it's Jim Belushi, so the dog was just like, yeah. I gotta get well, out of this well. city, this dump. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, my cousin said the human flesh is pretty good. You know, I want to try this thing. Oh, it's pretty good. <laughs> um, Someone give me some buffalo sauce. 
Am I crazy? There's... Am I crazy or does Henry Thomas's character say take your medicine? He does. He, yeah. No, no, no. Gerald says he's talking to he's talking to Jesse at one point and he says maybe it would have been better to have this out in the open and take take our medicine. Okay. Um, I thought that I thought that um, well, I you're thinking Henry you're getting Thomas... mixed up with Doctor Sleep. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. Was I? I I wrote it down. I was like, I think I was. I don't know. I was half in, half out at that moment. But oh like... no, no, I'm sorry. I'm lying. I'm lying. I'm looking at my notes. I'm wrong. It is Tom. It is. Yeah. It, he is. It's when he's talking about coming forward to the mother about what happened. Right. He's like, maybe, maybe it's better to tell her and just have it out there and take our medicine. Yeah. That's what he says. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I thought that was just interesting because then, uh, spoiler alert, Henry Thomas, uh, goes on to play Jack Torrance in Dr. Sleep, Mm -hmm. which, uh, still one of the weirder choices of that movie, but, uh, Hey, I love Henry Thomas. So I do too. Yeah. Something also I noticed, um, and I, I read it in some trivia, but I, I was like, oh, I, I want to believe that that's real, that that's real, is that the Moonlight Man's wearing a necklace of a, the skull of a rook, which is like Cuthbert from The Dark Tower. Oh, wow. Sorry, I got that's a pretty cool. That made me happy. That's pretty cool. And I thought and I, and, when, and I went back and I, I pulled up the movie and I looked I looked for it and I was like, oh, he is. Oh, wow. <laughs> that, that is such a great little tiny subtle, you know, it also kind of threw the thing out there that made it for me a little bit more like a, a less of a bitter pill to swallow is like, what if the moonlight man is not from this world? And that's why he's so not real looking. You know what I mean? Like yeah. maybe what if he like came from that, the dark tower, you know what I mean? Maybe he's from, well, um, maybe he's a runt. He's a runt. Mm, <laughs> yeah. Like maybe he's a mute, maybe he's a mutie, you know? Like, mm-hmm. Well, Hey, um, speaking but, uh, of those like bones, they make a reference to another Stephen King uh, novel and a section of the losers club. Uh, she says a bag of bones. So, um, Oh, <laughs> that's a Stephen King novel. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's wild no, it is, it's fun to see those little ones but i think that the dolores claiborne one to me is like one of the most notable film uh, uh king's dominion moments that i think there is yeah oh totally and yeah. he does a little like i mean he's just he loves easter eggs and he does little things that um he sprinkles in here that are his, to his own work like uh you could see part of the oculus uh thing i believe is part of oh, the yeah. bed the maybe the the, the bedpost is like the uh, it's like the bottom or top half portion of like the the thing from oculus that's pretty oh cool. wow yeah yeah and then i guess the book the book that she throws um that uh midnight mass that actually was in production um right now but is being stalled out of production because of the coronavirus so yeah that's um, like his his follow-up oh. to um the, oh wait no it's not it's not his because he's doing the blind manor thing yeah right? and th- that's done though so that will actually yeah. be released so then fall. but midnight mass was going to be the next one which yeah. sounds really cool i'm like very into that yeah yeah um but other than that like i didn't recognize i'm sure there are other things but i couldn't think of i mean you guys one. caught more than i did i caught the big ones but yeah yeah, I mean, you caught the most important one <laughs> for sure. Cooch, <laughs> cooch. Yeah, yeah. Well, it made me I wonder, thought that there. I kind of wanted an alternate ending where you know she like you find out that she did make amends with the dog and Cooch. Cooch's <laughs> cousin like gets in the car at the end and they drive off in the sunset. I would have loved that. No, it does make me wonder if when he had him say the "take your medicine" line, if if he was already planning on having him play Jack Torrance. 
I don't know, but it, it definitely helped. Yeah, <laughs> it definitely helped. He heard he him say like, that you, line. You're a good, you're a good bad daddy. Yeah, you hop on board this train. And can I just say, I'm just so like happy that Henry Thomas keeps popping up in these things. It's like he's now he's like a he's a king regular. He's been in multiple king things. I think he's even in a Nightmares and Dreams episode. Yeah, right? it's actually one of the better ones um, that that that's sorted collection that we'll have to discuss. I, I just love that i'm like yeah just keep keep popping up in these king adaptations it's great to I see just, henry I thomas he's, he's unused yeah <laughs> i hope he plays ben mears um <laughs> hey oh, he, wouldn't yeah. be, he wouldn't be a bad ben yeah he'd be a good ben you know could you if he all right so in in our uh in one of the interviews that we that I remember reading, um, he said that he wanted to do uh, Pet Cemetery. Obviously, that didn't happen because Dennis Woodmeyer and Kevin Kolsch did it. But after watching Gerald's Game Here, could you have actually accepted Henry Thomas as um, uh, Lewis Creed? I mean, I guess he plays a father in Haunting of Hill House, but it's... Um, Why are you laughing while saying it? Because it's yeah, so like, what, sick. Do you not believe well, it? Well, no, or? because like after watching this, is, is it like... After seeing him, you know, play Tom here and like the dad, uh, is it is it uh, would it be hard for you well, to watch him as a dad in another King property? I think I if I if I go back and rewatch Hill House, I think I will struggle at least for a moment, mm. just because you know there's certain images you can't get out of your head. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, I watched it in that order, so I I think when I saw uh, Hill House after this, I was. It maybe momentarily like like oh this is like you know strange but he does play that character very it may just just very super lovingly like right out the gate like with his family and stuff so it's kind of like yeah you get over it. you get over it pretty quickly, yeah yeah I think. fair i mean i'd hope so i mean it would really ruin that et commercial from last year um if that where he's playing like a family man and everything anyway oh um, god oh god god uh, scene where et's on his lap oh god jesus <laughs> All right. Um, Should well, we move on to final thoughts? I think so. <laughs> Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. <laughs> okay, I'll be right there. He said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. Welcome to Final Thoughts. This is the part of the podcast where we share our final thoughts and definitive nose rankings mm. uh, of, of, of whatever it is we're discussing. And today we're discussing the film adaptation of Gerald's Game from Mike Flanagan. Uh, who wants to kick it off with their final thoughts? Mike? Uh, sure. Um, still hate the ending, but I love the movie. Carla, you're a diamond. <laughs> You're wow. <laughs> no, I, I think this is, you know, this is an essential King adaptation uh, set Flanagan um, on, on the course to becoming uh, basically the new Darabont, as you uh, mentioned in uh, your interview with Darabont, actually, uh, Randall. Um, yeah, I, I think this is it gets better with age in the sense of um, the ingenuity that's at hand, uh, especially as we discussed this being uh, a little bit like a stage play um, in a chamber drama at the same chamber drama at the same time. Love the use of King's Dominion here. I think it's uh, very stylish. Um, again, though, I'm harping on the ending. It, it, it still uh, still is a, a sour spot and a blemish, uh, which is why I'll give it four bright red Pennywise clown noses. Boom. Lara, do you want to go? Yeah, sure. Why not? Um, Let's see. Let's see. I, I, I kind of am in the same vein 
as as Michael on this one. Um, and I'm trying to separate it as much as I can from the book in my head. I'm trying to judge it on its own merits and not as compared to the book. So I'm going to put aside my criticisms of the ways he adapted the characters to be a little nicer and a little less rough around the edges um, because I still really enjoyed it as a movie and I think it's a fantastic horror movie, the ending aside, so I'm going to go also with four white, wed, Pennywise clown noses. <laughs> Mac? Um, yeah, I'm I'm right on, on the same level as everybody else, I think. I, I really enjoy this adaptation. I haven't read the book, but it makes me want to read the book. You know what I mean? And I think that's good. I also think that if, if you're pointing to a good use of Flanagan just knows how to do a quiet horror film and with those punches that, and I, I can't remember having a visceral reaction to anything lately. This is one of those movies where you watch it. And when you see that moonlight man in the corner, I, 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 I had a physical reaction the first time I saw it. Mm-hmm. And and if you can get a physical reaction out of me, like that's a that's already a nose in the bag. I'm giving it four bright red, Pennywise clown noses, and uh, it I, I you know say what you will about the ending, it's not enough for to to knock it down because it's so enjoyable for the for the most for the most part, and even the end is it's enjoyable watch. You're just like, what am I watching now? But yeah, I, I I still think it's four. I I hope I gave it four before. If I if I didn't, it might have been knocked down a little bit just because I was a little more critical this time. But really enjoy it. I'm uh I'm gonna crank mine up. I'm going four point five. Uh, bright red whoa. Pennywise clownos. This is one of the highest rankings I've given a movie on this pod. Yeah. And uh I I just love it. I think the adaptation is smart. I think it's uh it's it's active and it's it's special because you know he's trying to do something different here than a lot of other people do with king adaptations and and he's taking a risk because this isn't you know the kind of story that lends itself to adaptation uh well on its surface the thing is it just takes a little bit more thought to really think about how do i activate the story and i love that he did that and i love the actors he got i love the choices he made obviously some you know there's a few uh shaky moments and the ending is rough but the thing is, like, I still like the message of the ending, even if I don't really like the way that it necessarily manifests. Uh, and it's short enough that it just doesn't really bother me. I do agree, Mike, that the I remember I don't remember if you said this on this pod, but you said it before, which is like it would have been a lot more powerful, probably, if it ended with that kind of memory of her sitting with her younger self in the eclipse like there is that little moment and that's such a lovely moment and that probably would have been a more powerful ending but you know there really is sort of this uh message that that's being hit that i think is a is a good message and powerful one but uh very ham-fisted but you know uh i don't know i just i find myself very enthralled by sort of like the uh the antics of bruce and carla uh, as they ping pong throughout this room and 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 uh you know just kind of vomit out all these this really uh, tough, muscular, terrifying kind of language. And I don't know. I, I find it a very thrilling adaptation. And so, yeah, 4.5 bright red Pennywise clown noses, which uh, I think we're, that puts us, what, like 4.1, 4.2, somewhere around there? Yeah. Yeah. Average. I think that's fair. Very cool. Uh, well, this was fun. And we're going to stay talking <laughs> about, about uh, film and TV adaptations as we gear up for our next book, which is going to be Dolores Claiborne, which we're going to be doing uh, some, you know, I think we're aiming for uh, 
late April, early May. Uh, wait, let me double check the schedule as I'm talking. Yeah, to things all are of you. things got a little uh, jostled just because of the coronavirus, and um, we have a you know a few uh, special things uh, down the road. Uh, if only because, hey, we are launching a Patreon. Uh, so, it's true. You know, this is what? a big deal. Yes, we have a Patreon account. Uh, uh, it's www.patreon.com slash the barons, uh, which, hey, you know, as you know, some heroes and villains are there and a lot of episodes. We'll have more information on our socials. You can uh, find the links there and we hope that you'll be able to contribute a little bit more. We're going to uh, probably have. Uh, put out a message uh, singular to the Patreon that kind of breaks down what you can expect from it. So stay tuned for that. And then uh, just to give you an idea of where we're heading in the next few weeks, uh, we're going to, because of this kind of, you know, situation that we find ourselves in, we think it would be worth it to do a rewatch of the Stand miniseries from 1994. So the Great Stand rewatch will begin next week, April 3rd. uh, And then we're going to be talking about that uh, across four different parts. And we're also going to be sprinkling in uh, a dissection of Stephen King's The Golden Years, which is a miniseries that he made. So we're going to be in miniseries land for a little while as we gear up for Dolores Claiborne, which is going to be in early May. Uh, and we're going to have a special guest on that episode, which we'll tell you more about later. And then we're going to kind of gear up towards the release of If It Bleeds, uh, which comes out in May as well. And we're going to be talking about that. So. And I think it's I think it's fair that we, A, revisit the stand in this uh, time of the coronavirus, uh, COVID-19, as we discussed a few weeks back. Uh, I also think it's fair that we go through these miniseries because that's all we're doing now is just watching TV right. and stuff. Now so. that we're stuck inside watching stuff, it seems uh, like a good time to do these. So, yeah. And you should stay, as Randall mentioned, stay tuned to our socials because we are going to be doing a lot of cool watch party events uh, as well. Uh, because we're, we're all cooped up inside and we want to talk to people. Uh, and this will be a fun time for us to get together and have some nights, uh, little uh, viewing parties while we're all disparate and alone and sitting here wondering what's going to happen to the fate of our world so long uh, days and pleasant nights indeed yeah yeah well is that it this was fun (laughs) yeah i think this is it uh thank you guys so much for uh joining us for this discussion uh lara mac mike it's great to have you on my podcast just kidding it's always (laughs) great to be here uh thank you so much randall for the invite <laughs> this was fun. All right, uh, let's do it together, guys. Long days, long days, long days. And, and pleasant, pleasant, pleasant night. Consequence Podcast Network.